I don't miss the meetings about meetings about meetings. I had six head coaches in 14 years. Culturally, we were probably lost for a few years. The Red 78 with Alan Quinlan and Neve Briggs. Subscribe to the Rugby Channel on the OTB Sports app and turn on your notifications now. OTB AM with Gillette. Get into your flow with the new Gillette Labs Razor with exfoliating bar. And you're very welcome along to Thursday morning's OTBM. It's a very special OTBM this morning because we have a studio guest all the way from La Rochelle. The Hollywood lights of La Rochelle. Ron Regard, good morning to you. Ger, on great to be here. Uh, feels strange. Back. First time in two years, I think. Back to Ireland. Right. So, um, yeah. Have, have we changed as a people? Are we more welcome, more open, or are we still the shower bottles? I haven't, that, yeah? <laughs> I haven't met anyone. <laughs> I got in really late. I got up early, didn't cross anyone walking across the green. Okay, so, very good. Um, uh, excited to be here now for for uh, for this little segment and uh, get a day's work done, and then uh, back to the my real job tonight. And the real job at the moment is this a busy time of the year, focused just on the upcoming games, or are you already plotting and planning for next year? And so what's actually happening at the minute is they're kind of making up time during the Six Nations for the games that had uh, COVID issues earlier in the season. So, for example, this weekend, um, and you have to keep the order of the of the schedule. Do you get me? So uh, I have to play the games in sequence as they correct, were. Correct. That's right. The, that's the right English for that. Um, so it's um, Montpellier, Toulon this weekend. Then it's Toulon, La Rochelle the following weekend, and on Sunday night it is. Uh, Claremont um, Bordeaux and um, there's another game the following one more game to make it up so everyone then has played I think uh, 20 games 6 games to go and it's probably 9 teams within 7 points so it's carnage I mean it is carnage but it's also exciting right? Yeah it's it's incredibly exciting because there's different ways of going about it too because with the history of the Bouclier and trying to be competitive and to win it it's nearly takes off once you get to the phase finale, as they say, the barrage. Um, and um, you probably need a, a lot of juice in the tank at that stage, but you've got to make sure you're in the top six. Um, last year was probably different because it was, I put a big emphasis probably on, you mean, um, finishing first or second, which we did, which was brilliant because you go straight to semi final, which means you're 80 from a final. But we were really good in the semi final and then within 10 minutes of the final uh, you knew against Toulouse they, they mentally physically had a, had a, an advantage on us they've, I was just reading they've 10 in the French squad this weekend so similar to Leinster I suppose and how they supply the bulk of the team to the French team uh, but you're obviously constantly plotting in your head how how you can go about putting this uh so-called masterpiece in place. Yeah, and so that's that's always there for the short term. But I presume a lot of agents are ringing you and saying, "My guy's free at the end of the year. He wants to come." Is that is that always happening? Does that happen twelve months a year, or is there a period of the year where that ramps up? <coughs> yeah, it's, it's an interesting question. Usually, with a little bit of experience now, getting a bit wiser, that's not a call you want right. because y- you have to have a. A good system, a good plan, uh, a really, I suppose, uh, you know, the strengths, the weaknesses, SWOT analysis nearly when it comes to um, your recruitment. And it's something that's hugely, hugely important. You can 
keep telling yourself you're a great coach but I think as we all know um, there's certain cattle that are better than other cattle <laughs> in, in, in the field yeah. and uh, I think a good example of that would be Will Skelton there's very few uh, I suppose players athletes of that um, not capabilities but of that um, measurements available in the market so like it just helps when you when you kind of how, how do you convince him that it's the right thing to leave Saracens to come to play? And I think that was that was a big, uh, uh, I suppose, plus for me in the fact that uh, he wanted something different. He wanted to be try something else, but the coaching has to be good. But you, once you get that, you have um, we've done good recruitment for next season. That's next season, Jar. It doesn't count, you know. People yeah. are there. Well, you know, we will have a good plan but like four you, months you, in sport is so long so it's only getting exciting now my field season feels that it hasn't even started but if you don't do the recruitment well now then next season could be or not a write off but it'll, you know, you, you're behind the eight ball straight away and I'm always struck by the fact that these are different jobs the recruitment job and the coaching job like in football traditionally the, the soccer manager would have bought his players for his style of play but now clubs realise that actually it's a very difficult thing to know all the best talent in all of the leagues around Europe and so like, do you get help with that? Is there somebody else that you can lean on? Is there a, is there? A, yeah, I think it's a really fast change in space. And it's one of the meetings I'm going to have today. There's a, a few people in Dublin that are very, very good at this in terms of, I suppose, uh, um, analysing the data and making sense of the data from schools players f- from South Africa, Australia, England, France, all around the world to uh, first, second, third division players all over the world and. Uh, Understanding uh, who's performing and having actually a system that a coach can kind of um, respect, understand and put that into the kind of uh, the big pot to give you the data to say, yeah, this guy will go well here or this guy under the high ball, for example, is very, very strong. This guy in his right shoulder isn't capable of making tackles one on one. All stuff like that, that uh, when you're playing week to week, you get churned out. Mm. By, by next game next game next game but then in the background there's some really smart brains that are are, are, are providing information like that and something now that um, you know I think as a player I was probably reluctant to it I was big in the GPS and the competition within the players and in the team but I think as in the in the management in the background you have to be aware of this but I mean I think I remember years back maybe was it Wales and Six Nations games were changing players because of of um you mean drop off in, in, in intensity or in, in meters per second uh later in the game which I don't think that's probably the best way of doing it either in the fact that you kinda of have to understand the flow of a game and sometimes yeah. there's way more action on the right hand side than there is on the left hand side if your plan is to hit midfield and either sweep or to play the same way. So you've one back row maybe that's not involved at all. But he essentially is doing a lot of benefit for the team by holding his width that people are attracted to him. But yeah. uh, the data, yeah, is is it's it's a it's a, a fascinating space, but I think it's the same, I suppose, as putting in robots, is it, into, into factories and stuff. You need that human element. Yeah, to totally. It. And is rugby kind of catching up on other sports a little bit with that stuff? Like, um, is there a world where in five years' time every individual club has somebody whose job it is to make sure that they have the best data 
for the the players I'm talking about. So at the moment, if you if you're a football manager in the League of Ireland, you can sign up to Y Scout and you get information on every single footballer in who's registered, and and wow. you can you can track uh, kids all around the world in almost all their games and give analysis on their the quality of their performance. It doesn't seem like we're at that point yet. With no, rugby. I'd say we're very close, and I think. Um um, that would be happening I'd say within the next you mean 12 months I right. think there's, there's uh, I think um, yeah there's a guy Derek McNamara I think his name is and uh, incredibly uh, interesting and I think he was involved in an American company but I think he's gone back on his own now so he can keep more control of it right and uh, and uh, I think you mean it's some of his ideas or, or some of his potential suggestions and just make you stop and go, OK, there is something here, definitely. Because as you say, you, you like where where you could get an S-bar, for example, to come in to a French club under the age of uh, 20, he just has to play three years and then he becomes GIF. Like People don't understand that. Even a lot of Irish young Irish players here, if they can get that... Licence or that uh, qualification for three years, they're made. Do you have it for life? Like, y- yeah, exactly. Okay, so, so you can so go you and come back and come back. Exactly. That's the strength of the French game. Okay, right. Is, uh, well, exactly. So if you're a good 19 year old who hasn't quite made the first team here, you could go to France and play three years, or do you need to be 17 to go? Um, no, 18, I think. Okay. See, they all call it by before 2000. None of that, that, that doesn't register in my brain when they talk about <laughs> 2000, 2001. He's 2003. You're like, yeah. what age is that? <laughs> um, but, but also, more interestingly, from and it's something that hasn't been probably uh, talked about enough, if you're uh, a Southern Hemisphere front row, for example, and you did three years from 18 to 22 and in an academy in France. Yeah. And then you want to go and chase the All Black dream. You can do that, but come back at the end and be well, you'd have your you would have your GIF qualification, nice. which all of a sudden gives you a really really good living. Yeah, and then you have the best of both worlds. Maybe yeah, that's interesting because we had Ross Hamilton on the show last week talking about sorry um, about the speed of the Ireland breakdown, and it's that level of data analysis where we know speed of the breakdown is very important. But he had it to like the number of seconds, and it was two point two for Ireland and we were second and he was like this had happened now so consistency over a long period of time it is something that they've clearly focused on in the Ireland camp and it's that bit that the data becomes transferable to us and as as lay people when we're watching the game so it actually improves and enhances the quality of spectating correct but also I think that's a, a perfect example of understanding probably the data and the coaching mixed in one so if it's something that I'm Absorbing as well because they're they're, they're of the same school, uh, Dunica Ryan, Paul O'Connell. So they would be huge um, fans, uh, students of that area of the game, and understanding how you can speed it up and what slows it down. So they actually, you mean getting the the speed of the rock ball? They actually want the players to get to the ruck before it's even happened so that there doesn't become a ruck and you're like oh, well how actually does that happen but if I had a video here I'd be able to explain it to you and it's really really powerful how 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 it works and I think it's it's, it's an area of the game where um, you mean on the flip side of that we have someone in our staff that would be 
very much intent on messing up um, the opposition's rock ball. So they, you, they're all part of the same thing, though, aren't they? It's like if if we slow theirs down to three and a half seconds, then all of a sudden our defence is fully set and they're not going to be able to get yeah, it. Yeah, and in rugby, it's the first two phases or first two collisions that that are very important. So if you don't stop Robbie Henshaw or Bundyaki, and then you've you know what I mean. Uh, James Ryan or Josh van der Fleer on a good line coming around the corner on, on phase two all of a sudden they're on the front foot the, yeah. the opposition are retreating it just makes it very very easy but for example if you get a good shot on the gain line in first phase and you have an, like, an inside threat on the ball and an outside threat potentially going to uh, to slow that down or look for penalty because diving off the feet will be a penalty so there's, a, there's, there's so many games within the game around the ruck at the, at the minute but yeah I think it's a hot topic but the ruck has always been very very um, important for the last 20 years there's probably a lot more detail available now f- in terms of data yeah. Um he was speculating that what Ireland had done was focused on this, obviously, and it sounds like that's true. And then have have kind of they're playing a relatively high risk game where they're not committing huge numbers. So the idea is to get the rook in, get out of it fast, keep the ball moving, and don't commit a huge amount. So if you do get turned over, the three or four times in the game that you get turned over, you're willing to take that punch each time on the basis that the speed of your rook is so impressive over the 70 or 80 or 90 rooks that there are that on balance it's much better to be yeah and I think you know I think um, that was Josh Schmidt's greatest strength I think in the fact that that's how he coached but what we're seeing now was probably then the evolution of that and the fact that I think Job was so I suppose intent on making a rock, but in France they don't like going to ground or they don't like rocking the jeu de boue, you know, they try and keep the ball alive and play it out of the tackle. So you can see all the Toulouse players, they'll, they, they will probably, at their last option would be to fall, while in Ireland for a time uh, when we were so rock focused, the easiest thing was to fall, to create a rock, knowing that your two nearest supporters would be there, otherwise it wouldn't be the ball carrier's fault. Now I think we've had an understanding that the ball carrier is hugely important, that he has to, you know what I mean, fight to try and win his one-on-one in front of him, and then you either play the ball uh, out of the tackle, or if you need to rock, we can rock, but there's probably that obsession with the rock is gone, but I mean, for, for... for so many years, it was it, it was so good for Ireland, but then it just became stale. And the fact that the, the tr- opposition, I think, became aware that there isn't going to be this kind of capacity to to, to play instinctively, and, and that became probably the downfall. But I think, from a you mean a young coach, you have to admire uh, and the success Joe had in that regard. Now it's coached by Paul, who is a massive fan of Joe Schmidt. But like, what's coming in then is that. You, you, as you correctly said, there's there's more risk taking, there's more capacity to play the moment in front of you to, as you say, to see what picture the opposition are giving you, and there's not this probably uh, negative arms up in the air approach if there's an error. So it's kind of we dig in for each other. Yeah. And, and did, did that change happen as quickly as it seemed to us? Like uh, inside the game, did you see that alteration in how the game should be played? coming all along because to us it was like end of 2018 this is working start of 2019 this is not working yeah um, yeah, I I think that's that's what happens at at top level sport when it stops you fall off a cliff you look at 
I suppose um, you mean going to the World Cup and the performances at the World Cup it was it was kind of it looked um, that it just wasn't happening on and when you're living that and you're in that it reminds me of probably the 2007 World Cup it's horrendous you feel you so so want to change and you do everything to change and you work so hard during the week to change it but you're you're, you're nearly power, powerless to, to do anything about it because you're eaten eaten up alive inside by by not being able to do it I just want to tell everybody what's coming up between now and uh, 10 o'clock this morning OTBIM brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish to your day we've obviously got Ron McGarr with us in the studio for a little while longer newspapers coming up at 5 past 8 Martin Lipton at 20 past 8 sports news at 8.40 uh, the very latest from the hurling pod with Will at 8.50 and Colin Boyle is going to join us at 10 past 9 to talk to us about what's happening this weekend and Philly McMahon uh, is also going to uh, talk to us around about half 9 this morning um can I ask you about Sexton and the new the new deal and um, you know Brian just was sitting where you were sitting during the week and he was making the point that now modern athletes are going on to their 40s and the Tom Brady example is the one I think that Stuart Lancaster had made to Sexton after the last World Cup to kind of you know say this that this isn't the end this, you know you can keep going and he is he's obviously still going he's still very effective um, it sounds like a lot of Irish rugby fans are penciling him in now that's our out half problem for the World Cup solved yeah it would be and uh, for it was a most logical step during the week because of the way he's playing so I think there's probably the separation between that's what happened during the week was a contractual issue in the fact that uh, if Johnny uh, you know what I mean has the appetite and wants to play to the next World Cup that path is very clear for him to go chase that I think in reality it isn't uh, straightforward in the fact when you get to to his age uh, it becomes difficult not to say it can't be done but uh, I think he's um, he's he's in a position with his performances this season where uh, the team needs him and and as long as that is the case then then he will drive drive on what is very different though is NFL to rugby union rugby union is a phase game where you have to play close to the gain line and you don't have protection what also happens is that when you go to big competitions you have probably you know I mean five or six games within a six week period where it's it's very difficult probably to uh to um to play week in week out at that age because it, I think what, what what people sometimes miss is the fact that when you're such a competitor and your team are are, are trying to win a qualifying semi-final of, of big competitions training is hugely important so people miss the point that you have to train hard to get the best out of you and the team and that's where I suppose the growth in the team comes between now and the next World Cup and, and as you saw uh, he was excellent against uh, Wales but Monday or Tuesday after that after a big game on the Saturday went hard and probably a tweak in his hamstring that happens at that age and, and that's something that I think that the public have to expect uh, from I suppose if you were in the Irish management team it would be interesting to see um, how they're going to manage the, the number two and number three because I think it would be um, 
you mean uh, probably an overestimation if you're counting on him for every game but that, 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 at that, for me at that age it's not possible I think he's an incredible competitor and a massive willingness to 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 get Ireland to a semi-final which is always going to be in a player's thing but like the I mean Andy Farr will have to have have that plan where at the minute the number two is underplayed under probably prepared and undercooked for for uh, Johnny to miss a period of three or four games uh, what I think you're looking for there is that you're looking to upskill uh, Joey with game time uh, is it Harry Byrne after that with game time we don't know McCarthy, yeah. you know but it's and there's not many games to find out there's the and the games are uh, big games you look at the calendar ahead it's England, Scotland New Zealand, New Zealand New Zealand I think maybe America is it South Africa Australia brilliant games uh, so it's it's. what would you do? <laughs> <laughs> wouldn't you love to have that that choice but it's it's um, there's a huge obviously skill in, in, in keeping uh, Johnny Simran and on the ball but like the reality is for me that you have to get as much minutes into whoever you're, you're, because if Johnny starts every game, the reality is, I think if you if he plays fifty or sixty, it's fantastic. Or does he finish the last thirty? Which would you prefer? Because it sounds it sounds like uh, we we're actually asking him too much to be our starting out half for a tournament like the World Cup. Like the point you made about the injuries, Jamie Vardy was out for two months with a, a hamstring injury. Comes back, injures his knee, he's gone for another month, and Vardy's eighteen months younger than Sexton is like players at that age get injuries yeah. all the time yeah, exactly and and that's because they're because if they don't push hard in training they won't get to where they because they're fighting for their time at that stage and they need to train well to give them that confidence to know uh, I can do this and, and age is just a number but it's not just a number of times because your body uh, so do we transition quickly in the meantime Let's let's park the World Cup right and see whoever whoever is the best out half at the World Cup and whoever is fit at the time you pick them for those games. But should we actually be getting to the situation where we're starting Carberry and Sexton's on the bench for games sooner rather than later? Like certainly in the summer, but maybe before that. Yeah, but I think there's been such a huge focus on these um, six nations that. Um, it seems to me that they're going to probably go strongest team against England, which includes Sexton. I would say there'd be potential to change that against Scotland. Is how I read it as a with, as a complete outsider. That that would be my thinking on it. Then I think the summer tour gives you a different um, give you gives you different options. But but as you say, it's it's uh, you need to be kind of understanding who who the number two is too because it's yeah. It's only, uh, not only, but it's only in the fact that you're trying to grow the the younger guys' games, and and that fifteen months is is very important to them. While that will seem short, but while it, for someone like Johnny, will eighteen or fifteen months is a long, long time because it's um, at that age, it just it, it's it's a not a difficult, but it's a challenging role to, to put yourself in the best physical position. You, you said there that there's obviously not enough time to find out 
how good your number two is or to road test your number two in, in test rugby. Is that actually why Joey Carberry disappointed a few people with his performance the last day? Because he hasn't been given that opportunity and that is the exact sort of growing pain that is going to need to be experienced in order to, to get closer to Johnny Sexton. Yeah, because he's played very little rugby too over the last two years from, from an injury point of view. He's uh, anything that's kind of, um, if you look at his list of injuries, it was quite a, a lengthy list. Uh, so whether he's playing, you mean, I don't, with the, I suppose, fractured nation of the season too, with the URC competition, he's not, you mean, in that position, he needs to be playing 80 minutes 10 times in a row. But I'd say if you look at his minutes, it's way off that. Mm. And I'm only stabbing here now, and I'm not, that may not be accurate, but I think, um, so, you know what I mean, especially as an old half, you just get better and better and better by owning that position and, and, and getting comfortable in, in that jersey. But like that, obviously, you mean the dictates, but you mean the, 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 the union run the provinces and the fact that, um, you mean it could be, OK, we well need Joey playing every, at 10 every game he's available because that will make the, the, the national team in a better position. And if they're thinking right now that Sexton is going to be their number one out half at the World Cup, does it not then make sense to give him this summer off? Because is he going to be able to play all throughout this summer, all throughout this autumn and for Leinster, and then, of course, pre-season or pre-World Cup um, test matches next summer? Like There's going to have to be some bit of give, you'd suspect, for a player of his age at that point. So... You, you pull Sexton out of one of those windows, surely, do you? And you can't, be, you can't pull him out of the Six Nations next year. No, you can't, exactly. Um, but that's managing your players and knowing what buttons to push and how do you get the best out of them. And it's probably not a one-way conversation. I think you have to feedback too from uh, how the athlete is feeling and, 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 and how does he view things. Uh, I think, as you say, though, it's the, it's the management who decide this and, and probably make the formula for, for being successful at a World Cup uh, if you were the player and I remember back and you're being told I'm not throwing tro- to New Zealand when there's a possibility of, of making history it's a, it's, it's a, it's a very very difficult uh, decision to swallow on mm. but the, the players don't decide you know I mean that's the big difference that, you, that when you when you go to the other side you understand that the player's mentality is kind of a, a one lens view while well, from a staff's point of view, you have everything kind of discussed and uh, probably chatted through where... Does a player change your mind ever after you think you've made your mind up? Um, no, I don't. I, I don't I, the, for me, that would be that you are... Um, you weren't probably decisive in your own thoughts before you had the meeting. Uh, I think w- what a, a player can do is most definitely make you aware of his point of view and potentially have a new point of view that you may not have thought about but uh, you mean for example I think when it's you mean uh, lately you've kind of for me learning you know me you, you fitness test a player before a game and yeah I'm fine coach I'm perfect <laughs> <laughs> so I did too <laughs> one guy blew up after one minute twenty and and the other guy uh, the other guy was past it was okay and looked me in the eye and said fine but then 
five hours later he went on the pitch and he was dead right. so like that for me was was a good learning the fact that yeah okay he's he, he he won the fitness test but he failed the game what did I need him for the game yeah but it's it's hard at times to but that's where you need to be not popular uh, to kind of go well no sorry what's best for the team today is you're out get yourself ready for Monday and you'll have another go I, I, one last thing that I wanted to kind of just tease out um, the the evolution of, of the style of play we've talked a little bit about how do we make sure that it continues to get better between now and the World Cup and that we're not peaking now basically uh, the the PTSD uh, and the trauma of the last World Cup hangs heavy over Irish rugby like yeah we, we, we are it's all forgotten about now and the fact that we're on a probably on a spurt in the curve yeah a year out like we were the last time yeah even That's more even 18 months out hmm. yeah, and that would be um, how do you keep the spurt going I suppose is the question I, 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 I think you just you, you stay in the moment and I think you make short term kind of growth very very important and creating competition within the squad for for example you, you, you know when you look at um, I suppose the way the, the squad have moved on from um um, oh, g- injury to um, the loose head at uh, Andrew Porter. Jeez, how could I ever forget that? What a player, Andrew Porter. You know who for me is is just so valuable to any team. He's playing great rugby, but oh, it was just okay. Uh, Forty minutes, kind of. That's dealt with. We're on. It's an opportunity for someone else. Mm. Uh, they have, I suppose, genuine competition in so many places uh, that that's what you're looking for. And once that's once you've established that, um, it makes it very competitive. But it's still, uh, you know, independent on on Johnny being in form because if you take that out, it's Carberry on form, which is like it's not the same team. It's like you I mean for for me, I think and. Yeah, Eddie Jones gets um, gets a rap from certain people, but I think his preparation for World Cups is fascinating, and the fact that he's so well taught uh, through of what he wants to achieve at World Cup time, and that's he goes, okay, judge me on that. And I think he's won one, I think, and been in three other finals. Uh, so I think he knows what he's doing, and for him this weekend, he's going to see no Farrell, no uh, Tuilagi, and. Uh, two of the Vinopolas missing and he, I think he's interested to see where his team is knowing that when he has them England could potentially be 30-35% better yeah because they're big pieces of anyone's jigsaw with the size of the two men the English media are like saying oh two games to save his, his job I'm like that makes no sense he's in the middle of like churning through all these players and going yeah you you can be part of my team you can't be You've, you know you haven't shown up you're not good enough like that's uh, obviously they haven't won the Six Nations and if exactly. it's unlikely they will and it's yeah but it's after the first game it was kind of like okay yeah let's build for the World Cup yeah and yeah. but I think you mean there's so many people I suppose that are um you mean if you always do what you always did, you always get what you always got. But like, well, he's kind of plucked Anthony Seaball, is it the the Brisbane Broncos coach who had a horrible season as the general manager in NRL and was on on the floor, and now he's in as his um, defence coach 
in England because I think he understands that maybe I can get one, two, three percent of, of just probably alternative thinking from this guy because he's probably he understands they have limited time to probably get the ideas across, but it's probably maybe his value is in is in meetings and in kind of for me the NRL is is, is six months ahead of rugby union, so everything you see in right. terms of of uh, be kind of annoying, is it? I look at those guys. Yeah, but you see now, you 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 watch that. It's it's a fantastic competition, but you watch the phase plays that happen in Union. Most of those ideas are plucked from right. from the NRL, and and uh, you mean these kind of playing out the back and the pods and and and, and stuff. It's it, because obviously it's so much easier to set it up and create in in, in rugby league because there's no rock. Yeah. So uh, you just get a, a line against a line attack. So you kind of have to be and smart in how you structure your atten- uh, defence and attack and they have good skill levels but it's it's uh, yeah there's so, there's so many I suppose um, subplots for the weekend uh, Living in France do you have a, a, a different sense of the French media are you are you reading everything or are you actually is it okay to ignore it because this is in the context Paris Saint-Germain beaten last night from a very winnable position 2-0 up against Real Madrid and they lose 3-2 um, you were probably travelling and didn't see the game but the, the L'Equipe uh, player ratings are fairly typical L'Equipe um, so it's a 2 for Donnarumma 3 for Kempembe 2 for Marquinhos after that things get a bit better apart from Neymar who gets a 4 and Hakimi who gets a 4 there's uh, 5 7 for Mbappe and Verratti 6 for Messi Jeez, I was expecting to be a lot lower considering the French oh, media no, I think um, these are generous for Lakeeper, aren't they? Yeah, especially I suppose. Um, you mean considering it's not the first time we've been here with, with Paris Saint Germain, no, and and they're uh, they're hugely disappointed. Obviously, yeah, there's um, massive, massive interest in that game last night. Incredible in the fact that, but I think, um, yeah, I mean. There's something missing there, obviously. I mean, is there any chance that the rugby team could end up being as flaky as uh, Paris Saint-Germain? And that would be great for the rest of the world, wouldn't it? <laughs> I don't think so, though. There seems, uh, for the first time, not the first time, but in a long time, it feels like there's a there's a very solid base yeah. to the French uh, rugby uh, uh, network group, team, management. They're, they are very united it seems uh, and that's not just the first 30 that seems to be um, what they have there is that they want they, you mean all the players that are club players now want to play yeah. for France which wasn't the case it was before it was earning a good living and are if f- I get to play for France it's a bonus yeah are the French rugby media the same as they keep or the player ratings tend to be Twos and threes. I don't. I haven't seen many of the of the, of the uh, ratings. I think what's what's good over there is the fact that they they um, they write the question and then exactly as the player or coach says. Okay. Yeah. So it's very much in context. Yeah, because uh, I I read somewhere in the papers today it was a question about. Uh, um, something and something is being ridiculous and Eddie Howe answered the question but was he actually asked was it ridiculous or was that the view of the person whereas actually if you see the question there's an opportunity yeah, for you to make your mind up it's very very different yeah and it's very very accurate and so you can't complain if you say something stupid basically <laughs> <laughs> it's there in black and white <laughs> it's just, that's on me yeah yeah exactly so it's uh, no but there's huge 
huge um huge interest in 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 the rugby team as well um so now with that yeah there'll be negative day or two around Paris Saint-Germain but it'll be um, well it's tomorrow night the big game in Cardiff and they've had a, I think a lot of illness in camp this week uh, not co- well there's two COVID cases but I think there's a lot of uh, flu in France right. seems to be swirling around and I think um, Aldred was off early in the week Fiku was off so I mean I think um they, I think um, they'll be too powerful and too good for for Wales I think uh, but you still want to be making sure you're near 100% for that game Give us your prediction for the England game It's a game I think that all of a sudden from the outside you're looking at that Ireland are favourites and I think that's very very dangerous in the fact that England and Twickenham are, are, are very different they're very usually um very very good in Twickenham it's, it's I think um, Ireland need to be um, on top of their game to, to come away w- with a victory um, but there's no reason why they can't be there seems to be uh, um, I suppose um, since the French game you watch that again Ireland were inaccurate in certain areas left opportunities out there didn't probably put France under the pressure that they needed especially in the first 40 then kind of played their game and were good uh, Tyg Furlong I think is is exceptional what he can bring to a team not in the scrum or in close quarters his capacity to be able to kind of release backs with the timing of a pass is exquisite and very few players backs included can do what he can do um, so it makes for you know a, a 50-50 game for me Ger, I, th- I think uh, yeah Ireland are probably more confident England are very much in the unknown um, I think that's probably if you're Marcus Smith I think that's probably an advantage for him he'll just play He, he for me he looks ready to have a massive impact on the world stage uh, and makes it very exciting the looking at the English team it's for the first time I think in a long time I, I don't have very good knowledge of the individual players in, in their team so I'm still kind of trying to understand who's going to play and and uh, why is he the winger why is he 15 and why is he 9 uh, but it's a, it's a fascinating game but I think uh uh, for me, it's dif- it's very very difficult to call. Yeah. Okay. All right. Great to have you with us. Cheers. Right about this time last year, you were going shopping around in the Munster for an out half. Is there anything that you want to tell us? Any, any, <laughs> any of those recruitment bits you want to just? No, no, no. He turned me down. So. <laughs> um, no, there's there's um, at this stage. What are we? It's no, it's business done. Anything you want to tell us about that hasn't broken yet? No. Okay. <laughs> Ronald Gara, ladies and gentlemen, and we'll be back talking the Champions League next. OTB AM. You know, forced, you know, errors and turnovers and the whole shebang. <gasps> Benzema! Oh. oh, what a goal! Two all! Oh my god, 75 minutes on the clock, they've equalised. This is an unbelievable goal. <laughs> it's an unbelievable goal all round. What a, wow. what a reaction from wow, Real wow, Madrid. Wow. Very interesting. Two all in aggregate. No way goals, of course. So we are level. Who'd you fancy on penos? <laughs> <laughs> oh, 
Vinicius and again. Oh! Real Madrid have scored! It's Benzema! Oh my god! Oh, oh my god. What just happened? What are we saying about you can't get excited about these Champions League games anymore? <laughs> oh my god. 3 1 Real Madrid, two goals in two minutes. Oh, Kareem Benzema done. with a hat trick. What have they done, Joe? Slayed by the King was the headline on L'Equipe. They think uh, Karim Benzema is the King after his hat trick last night. Oh, it was hard to uh, hard to disagree. You know, it's interesting that it was a Frenchman slaying Paris Saint Germain too. Does he go back to Paris Saint Germain? Have like a couple of years at the end of his career, uh, MLS style. You know, instead of going to America and raking in the cash, he can just go back to Paris and go. That might be the situation that PSG are in. Uh, like, I mean, does uh, Kylian Mbappe want to play with his buddy in Real Madrid for a little while? Be a good little uh, buddy cop act up front for them. Maybe they don't need Kylian Mbappe. Maybe it could be the other way around and they end up doing it in Madrid. It's that, oh, there's a bag there that uh, <laughs> you just need to open the open the door, Jojo, and it's, uh, it's just underneath there, yeah. So, 11 minutes past eight this morning. Your thoughts on the Champions League last night? You can leave a comment on the YouTube stream. Um, interesting post match reports coming out about. Uh, Paris Saint-Germain owner taking this very well yeah allegedly yeah. allegedly they, they, they saw the match and they were like yeah that seems fine that's no big deal we're, we're happy to have another defeat at the end of our multi-billion dollar investment in this team where we've literally got the greatest footballers of all time together and we can't win from 2-0 up yeah but I'm happy that's okay I'm, I'm you know I'm a, a modern sports owner I can tweet the treat treat the twin imposters of success and failure the same like it just shows the unbelievably high stakes that were involved in the Champions League this season for Paris Saint-Germain given they had signed Lionel Messi they had managed to persuade Kylian Mbappe to stay put I don't know what the situation was with Neymar maybe the, the simplest of the three but this was a sort of just stay put let's get this thing won let me bring the trophy uh, and, and all the pictures of that home to home to the Middle East and I will be a hero in Paris I'll be a hero in Qatar etc etc so this whole thing Champions League at the World Cup final I just have the trophy there accidentally sitting beside the World Cup and I'm that's the other thing that I've also managed to secure for us there you go so uh, Nasser El Khalafi uh, didn't take this very well naturally last night there is uh, plenty of reports uh, around the world really this morning ESPN are reporting it Movistar are reporting it but uh, some of the best detail uh, is in Marca this morning he says that uh, they said he went down to the, to the locker room after the game and, uh, and attacked a Real Madrid employee saying I'm going to kill you uh, so this was to do with the fact that Real Madrid I think are recording their own documentary at the moment there may have been a social media person down there loitering around anyway uh, and when the owner of your uh, opposition club comes down into the area where they're not supposed to be you probably take out your phone anyway so uh, Al Khalafi wasn't happy with that so himself and Leonardo the sporting director of PSG go down into the bowels of the stadium and uh, they went into the in and around your visiting teams uh, locker rooms he went looking for the referee um, and I guess the whole issue was to do with the suspected foul on Donnarumma for uh, when the time and uh, Benzema overturned the ball like I mean not a foul whatsoever and play away lads was an absolutely outstanding call by the referee but this must have been the issue that upset him so he went down really upset uh, with the officials apparently broke uh, a linesman's flag uh, in his anger and uh, a Real Madrid employee uh, recorded it as I say Al Khalafi according to Marca uh, went towards him, shouting, I'm going to kill you, and his own bodyguards had to hold him back. Later, Leonardo then demanded that the images on the Real Madrid employee's mobile should be erased. 
uh, which had obviously, um, you know. Yeah, 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 definitely. I'm definitely going to delete that. Not a chance. <laughs> Not a chance. Uh, just kind of quoting more from the piece here, and apologies for the, for the Google Translate uh, lack of syntax here, but he said, uh, in the final minutes of the game, he began to show with shouts and gestures what was going to happen minutes later. He duly announced it. He was not the only one since Leonardo uh, seconded him. Neither the patience nor the attempt uh, to lower the tension was of no use. The top manager, Al Khalifi of PSG, lost his nerve between insults and bad manners. The show continued in the locker room area, but the truth is that he had already broken everything that was considered the minimum rules of behaviour in a box. So he was going crazy upstairs, then he goes downstairs and goes even more crazy. And uh, the uh, referee did record the aggressive attitude of the PSG leaders who addressed him with threats, blocked the door and even broke one of the linesman's flags. Uh, This is reflected in the minutes in Section 7 that in incidents after the game, the president and technical director of PSG showed aggressive behaviour and tried to enter the referee's locker room. When the ref asked him to leave, they blocked the door and the president delicately hit, delicately hit the pennant of one of the attendees breaking it. In uh, our language, the linesman's flag, he delicately hit and broke it. It's a little touch there so the referee's report does have a, a bit of detail on this I, I mean it, it, like this is this is not we're not having any schadenfreude here whatsoever this is not a delicious little morsel of mmm post-match mmm give me these little morsels that's not how we feel this morning at all we are not we're not reveling in this we're not enjoying this this is not like the, I mean it's Real Madrid who won so it's not like you know but yeah. it's like definitely Slightly better. I mean, now it's slightly better. Uh, they have their own dark past, but um, sure look. Al Khalifi kind of storming downstairs, shouting, Stop the count, stop the count, is, is what I see happening here. Uh, <laughs> Kofifi. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and Leonardo, obviously, his, uh, his trusty. Leonardo, what are you doing? Like, oh, delete the phone, delete the phone. Like, no, I'm not deleting the phone, Leonardo. I'm going to publish that. It's going straight in our documentary, and it's going to look absolutely amazing. Uh, like, and uh, you, you just think of, of everything going to, who's going to be cross, uh, caught in the crossfire of all this. Like, you, you were talking yesterday about that their league on form uh, is pretty good. They're going to win the league at a canter, but it just feels like that's it. Season's over now. Whereas even more so than Manchester City for obvious reasons. They need well, this. So, like. <laughs> Carlo Ancelotti has just come from Tindall down against the greatest team not the greatest team in the world they're not because they're not a team but a team festooned with the most expensive and best players that we've ever seen assembled and Carlo Ancelotti is the mastermind behind it <laughs> like I, I wonder at some level is the is Florentino Perez going am I going to have to get Ancelotti down next year now as well yeah he, and he, also he's also thinking I mean Poch I want you but you're not you're just not good enough mm. Like I don't know, is this now of um, an earthquake in in what what everybody thinks? Are Man United getting a bit sniffy about Pochettino now because of this? Yeah, possibly. I, I think Perez. Or are that, they thinking we might have a chance to get them now? Uh, oh, interesting one. I think that I think Manchester United would have thought they always had a had a chance of getting him. I, th- I think Perez definitely wants something younger and sexier. And uh, Ancelotti, he's stuck with Ancelotti because Ancelotti is actually good at his job and is very well experienced, especially on European nights of getting a good result. And let's not forget, like Real Madrid held this thing up ten years ago to the level that Paris Saint Germain and Manchester City are currently holding this up. And then they won a lot of them, and now Perez is apparently satisfied. And you know, but they've won league titles recently as well, so they've kind of won it all. That Perez does kind of have a, a a very sort of not a casual relationship with his club, but he can kind of do whatever the hell he wants with it. And he wants to get excitement out of the club. It feels, of course, he wants to win everything. But I definitely feel that there was an attraction to shunting Ancelotti out and getting a Pochettino win. Next oh yeah, because it felt fresh and new, yeah, it was sexy. 
exactly uh, so now it's it's like wow okay this guy's actually good we can't really afford to get rid of him uh, like do I mean do, do Manchester United fans actually think that last night was some sort of referendum on Pochettino I wonder like I think that he's in a very difficult position to try and mould these players into a, a star-studded team but they should be doing better than the last 16 of the Champions League. Manchester United should have been playing Paris Saint-Germain if there were, wasn't that big cock-up in the initial draw for round 16. And you'd imagine that PSG would have won that game, obviously. Uh, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer would probably disagree with that, but uh, it w- would have been a, probably an easier tie than Real Madrid. I don't, I don't think it necessarily dissuades Manchester United from going after Poch, to be honest, because like, it is just one collapse in one night. And if you're making a valued decision... Uh, on your new manager you should probably be basing it on more than just one night you should be looking at all the league on games you should be looking at exactly how the team sets up uh, trying to find out as much as possible it's hard as, though as the because they're chemistry so that he's in, involved they're, in they're so ahead of everybody else and they did I don't know but like that's just, how you understand the patterns of play, how they do when they're in possession of the ball when they're expected to win games and I don't know it, it, like it, it's a huge setback for PSG and for Pochettino no question about it but Manchester United if they wanted to get him should probably have done a bit more than just last night Alright I'm delighted to say Martin Lipton is with us this morning to talk a bit more about this Martin good morning to you how are you getting on? I'm very well thanks What do you think about what Where? <laughs> what's the Pochettino story now after last night? Well funny I knew Look, it's really interesting because I thought for an hour they were absolutely outstanding PSG uh, Mbappe showed that he is uh, the new king of world football I thought he was absolutely magnificent scaring them rigid they had a good game plan that seemed set up they were taking her apart on the counter they were going to win the match 2 or 3 nil, it seemed and then Dunavuma has his moment and they collapse now is that because players panic or because the manager panicked did the manager you know not react to the situation sometimes it can happen I mean if you remember it wasn't that long ago uh, it was, the boot was on the other foot with Pochettino against Ajax uh, with Spurs in that semi-final when they were dead and buried and, and pulled it round. Sometimes things just happen out of the control of any manager almost that you can't um, prevent players discovering lead in their boots. And defensively, I mean, they were all shocking goals, weren't they? None of them should have been conceded. And can the manager be blamed for a series of staggering individual errors where players' heads go? I don't know. That's the thing. Like, I guess that's that's why we have shows like this to kind of tease it out and, and wonder aloud about it. But I guess from Pochettino, in in his defence, he will say that if I was building this team, then I would have had Mbappe in my team. But I may not have had Neymar and Messi with him at the same time. One or either of them, sure. But that trio, maybe when things are going against me, I would like somebody who is you know a slightly harder worker, a bit more available for the outballs, a bit more. Just a, a different player to help release Mbappe, and and perhaps that's his defence when it comes to whatever job is coming next, because it feels mm-hmm. like this has now run its course at PSG. Yeah, I mean, I can't see him being there next season. We know they want Zidane desperately, uh, always have done, and I, I think it was going to come at some point sooner rather than later. I mean, there's a danger now that Pochettino doesn't see out the season that they decide to can him, uh, and if they do, I think he'd be happy to go away. I don't think he's ever been content there. He wanted to go to a team where, like Spurs, to a degree, he wanted to win because he did not want anything at top, and that was important for him. No question about that. Well, he's won the league a couple of times. But what he did want to do was to be able to build a team, as he did at Tottenham. And he, he's not been able to build a team. He's been given the players that he has to play. And yet, it's very hard if you're a, play, a manager to say, oh, no, I don't want um, Mbappe. Or, no, I don't want Neymar. Or, I definitely don't want Messi. You can't say that. But you probably should be able to say in, in your own head, 
I don't want them all. You know, and that's the issue. I don't think any manager would want them at this stage in their careers, as it were. Yes, you want Mbappe at any point. He's fantastic. But Messi is is not Messi as was. Uh, he's living on faded glories. He's still a talented player. But when you have to play a player who's not delivering, um, see Manchester United, Cristiano Ronaldo, for a direct comparison, closed brackets. Uh, and Mbappe, who seems... Uh, sorry, uh, Neymar, who seems less than committed then at times you're playing with nine men and when it mattered yesterday when the heat came on they were a couple of players short on the pitch well, what's interesting is that Pochettino has maybe tried to take control of that situation at times this season like the Leon game earlier in the year when Lionel Messi was visibly upset to be taken off at that point you'd wonder if the more Pochettino tried to push against this, the more the hierarchy pushed down on him. When, you know, Nasser Okolofi has said we're going to spend this money on Messi, it wasn't for him to sit on the bench, was it? Hmm. You know, Leonardo is his master's voice. He passes the messages on to Pochettino. He's been told in no uncertain terms that you have to play these players. That's why we paid so much money for them. Basically, you're not the manager. You're the bloke who writes out the team sheet. That's what it comes down to. We were talking with Craig Hunter yesterday and he was saying that Real Madrid definitely were very interested in, in Pochettino in the past and would want to finally consummate that relationship and that the Ancelotti felt it like a little bit of a stopgap anyway and sure weren't they going to more than likely it seemed like more than likely they were going to go out last night and that would have been handy for Florentino Perez. There's the successful Paris Saint-Germain manager who was leaving them and the best players in the world to come to us. It's a big coup. Now, we've just beaten them and uh, it, it, it certainly diminishes somewhat the, the possibility of him ending up at Real Madrid. It doesn't. It doesn't end it, obviously. But there's a good chance Ancelotti gets another year off the back of something like this. So again, they could get spanked in the quarterfinals, and we all have a, a, a different opinion on that. But where where now do you think Pochettino is more likely to end up next season? Is it more likely Manchester than Madrid? I think so. But um, it's, it's interesting because Perez is. Always this strange thing whenever he's been there and Real Madrid have actually not liking the most successful managers in many ways. Uh, you, know, you go back to the turn of the century and they really were, were desperate to get rid of Del Bosca, even though he won them two Champions League crowns. You know, they've, they've always seemed to be wanting to sack Ancelotti from the moment he got there. Both his uh, spells in charge, even though he keeps delivering trophies, it's rather odd. But then again, that's that's Real Madrid. Perez wants a trophy manager. He wants to have a nice, bright, shiny thing to point to. Look, 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 I've got that. But suddenly that luster has gone off Pochettino. It will, would appear in the eyes of, of, of the fans on the basis of, of this. Now, I think actually he's a really talented manager. Um, but does he fit Real Madrid? You know, remember he was, he, he was very close to there at the end of, uh, I think it was 2018 season when he stayed at Spurs. Um, and probably he thinks now he should have gone you know it's one of those uh, would, have, would have been the right time to go when he stayed on and you know he, it, I, I maybe it's just not meant to be for him to go to Real Madrid at any point where he does go though is less clear I still think United's a viable option but there seems to be hints and insinu- insinuations that Ten Hag is uh, more preferred at this stage it's a bit odd, isn't it? The whole thing seems strange. And Pochettino's a bit of a crossroads in his career. His next move has got to be the right move. I think, I genuinely believe, and I'm, uh, this is just an opinion from me, that when Tottenham appointed 
Nuno last summer, it was because they thought Pochettino would be available before Christmas. Wow, I didn't realise that at all. Or... I don't, I'm not saying that's I just, it's just a feeling I have. I'm not saying it's true. It's just, it, I just get that sense that, that Tottenham thought that he would be available. And Nuno was a stopgap. He wasn't on a particularly long-term contract. Uh, and then they had to move early when it all started to go horrifically wrong. And Pochettino wasn't available when they thought he might be. And, what... and then they've made the decision they, they've made. And not a bad one at all, but I'm just saying that you know, it, it could well have been if, if events had been different. We know last summer that Pochettino did want to go back to Tottenham and that Tottenham were interested in him. Would Okay, that's uh, that, that was my question. Would the Levy-Pochettino relationship have recovered to a point where they could work together progressively into the future? Yeah, and there's no doubt about that. Look, there was, I think there was a, a feeling that in an ideal world they'd have given Pochettino a six-month sabbatical rather than sack him when they did go. And that's just not viable in football these days. Uh, there was a sense that it had run its course in that incarnation, but that it was uh, a relationship that could be rekindled with the same fervour and passion in the future. That is, I mean, that's really, that's like a, there's a, a deep love affair there, which means Pochettino might find it difficult to go to Manchester and, and compete against that team but look I guess you know uh, there will be many inducements it's fairly love war and football isn't it yeah really? and the, the <laughs> make that making him the second or third highest paid manager in world football will probably ease his pain as he as he um, you know sleeps on his bed of money at night but I, and I don't, he doesn't seem like he's particularly motivated by money so I, I, I don't want to stress that too much can I, I, I there's a couple of other things I wanted to talk to you about the, the, the Antonio Conte experience is wild it is a roller coaster and uh I don't know if we've had you on since his, his press conference where he was like, you know, I've lost four out of the last five games. Maybe I'm not good enough. It, we we definitely were thinking this this sounds like a kind of end game, a brinkmanship, and it was before the Chelsea game. It was like, or before, before the City game, rather. And, it, you know, and then the City performance is so spectacularly brilliant. And then the next performance is awful. And there's another one in the middle of that in the cup. And you're like, what is going on here? And then they turn around again. What is What is going on here? But first of all, I think it's pretty clear that Antonio Conte wears his heart on his sleeve. The problem is he likes to sort of conduct open heart surgery in full public view without anaesthetic, which I don't think does anyone any favours, but that's part of him. He's always been that sort of manager. What he thinks, it seems, is that these players aren't capable of repeating performances with a three-day break. But if you, give, if you give them a week to work on them, they'll listen to instructions. So when when they've had a, a you know a proper time working with uh, Conte, they've changed it to go out and win. Now, last week, they went um, four days, I think, between... They were Tuesday, they got beat by, um, by Middlesbrough. They had basically a week to prepare for Everton, turned up on Saturday, on, Saturday, on Monday. Um they had a full week before the City game. So when they have a bit more time, they tend to perform. So on that basis, they should be OK on Saturday because they've had five days to get ready for United. Um, but they are inconsistent. Is Even by Tottenham standards this season, they are so up and down. It's like they're bipolar, isn't it? You know, They, they really can't uh, have any level of, of certainty and equanimity. Maybe that's a, a byproduct of a manager who's so Vesuvio. I don't know that maybe if he were a bit calmer they would be um, 
less un, less inconsistent, but we don't know. Uh, and one of the reasons that you've got to be honest about it is a lot of these players aren't good enough. Um, you know, they are. There is there's half a dozen players who are two or three who are absolutely top class. Another two or three who are pretty decent, but quite a lot just aren't good enough, and they won't be there next season. Uh, one of those who we definitely didn't think was going to be there next season and who hadn't looked like he was good enough for the last period of time to play in, in Conte's or in a, a Champions League competing team was Matt Doherty. But his form in the last couple of weeks has been excellent. And you think back to Victor Moses, that's obviously the example that we're drawn most comfort from here from Kevin a, De Bruyne. a Republic of Ireland perspective. <laughs> Kevin De Bruyne is a comparison for Matt Doherty. Well... <laughs> <laughs> I'm hoping the long term, you know, uh, range of outcomes include him. Uh, people going, wow, he, you know, look what he did with Victor Moses. Uh, what's going on there? How, why is he suddenly playing well? If it's because he knows that Royal's not good enough, Emerson Royal is simply not good. The biggest waste of 25 million Spurs have ever spent. So, Dolly's seen a chance there. He's playing in, on the right of a five, which is much more natural. I think that's fair to say. 100%, yeah. Uh, and he's been encouraged to do what he's good at, which is get forward and deliver. And the goal he scored against Leeds, he wouldn't have made that run two months ago. He wouldn't have made the run. He'd have stuck, been stuck on halfway. So he's been encouraged. And he, I mean, a couple of passes on Monday night. I think, blimey, that's, you know, the, the new, the new, the new Perlo there at right back for Tottenham. Um, I think that, in reality, realistically, more likely is that he will be one of two right-wing backs next season and he'll play half the games, maybe slightly under half the games. He'll try and... Uh, but Royal will be the one that goes. As it stands at the moment, Doherty stage, Royal goes, they'll bring somebody else and they seem to be really keen on Jed Spence, who's currently at Forest on loan from... Uh, Middlesbrough, who did done really well in the FA Cup this season, they they seem to really fancy him, and they've also looked at Lamptey at, at Brighton. But what you've got there, both of those, is attacking wing backs. Uh, so that gives you an indication of how um, Conte wants to play, and that style of play would appear suited for Doherty, because we've seen that in a system where he's given license to get forward and has been encouraged to do so, and has gained confidence from doing so. And the other thing is, watching the games, the players are no longer scared to give him the ball. And I think for quite a while, they, they were a little bit fearful of giving him the ball. Well, his form didn't follow on from what he was capable of at Wolves, probably because he was playing as a right-back, and he's, he's just not a, a flat-back four right-back um, at the start. So, Conte's planning for next season... Is, the, is it safe to assume that the open heart surgery, uh, as wild a ride as it's been, will calm down over the next while and that the next transfer window will be Antonio Conte's fingerprints with Paratici and they're going to invest in, in his desire for a playing staff that fits the style of play that they knew he was going to bring when they signed him and that actually the the referendum, the, the seemingly match-off match on, match on, match referendum on whether or not he was going to be there next season, that's passed? No, he'll be decided by what happens in the window. If they don't deliver, he'll go off. He'll explode. And he'll make it impossible to stay because he'll just... He will take them to the brink and he'll, he'll just destroy the club in many ways, is what he does. I also think it's hugely important next summer for Kane's future. I think if Kane sees 
that they are serious and they're giving Conte the players he wants, that he will not push for a move. If he gets to the end of July, beginning of August, and they've not done enough, and they've wasted another two months of summer trying to get three million pounds shaved off here and half a million pounds shaved off there and an extra two million on the price for this one we're trying to get rid of, I think Kane will just say, that's it, forget it, I'm out of here as well. So they've got to satisfy both Conti and Kane. But if they do so, then you know that they're going to look like a harmonious squad with, with one unified sense of purpose, which is what they wanted all along. Big if, though. Is that sense of purpose going to arrive on time for them to grab that top four spot? Obviously, Saturday is a, a hugely important juncture. I think it's going to be difficult. I would say if you get if they get nine wins out of 12, that's 72 points, and that'll probably be enough. If you look at the fixtures, everyone's got to play each other. Mm. So they've got to, suppose they've got to play Arsenal, West Ham, United. Um, Arsenal have got to play United and West Ham. Uh, United have got to play, obviously, those two, plus uh, Liverpool again. Suppose and Arsenal have both got to play Liverpool. United have got to play Chelsea. Arsenal have got to play Chelsea. There's a lot of games where points can be won and lost all over the place. If if Spurs were to win on... If, if, if Spurs were to win on Saturday, that would give them real momentum because you probably think that would that would kill off United's realistic hopes because they played so many more games than the rest. It would then, you'd think, become a shootout between Spurs and Arsenal and that rearranged match, which will be, I suspect, in that sort of second or third midweek in May, in, in that... Um, catch-up midweek window that the Premier League keep available could end up being pivotal but it actually could be decisive um, I still think Arsenal just might shade it but 12 games is a third of a season it's a long long way and Tottenham look more cohesive now than at any point in the season it's going to be a very, very interesting race. There's one last thing I wanted to just flag. You're writing today in the paper about the Premier League and the presentation that they got around NFTs. Um, it sounded like your instinct is that the Premier League are going to go and sell NFTs, but there were some dissenting voices who were wondering, is this a bit of a pyramid scheme? Yeah, I think there's that genuinely, this is why there's a four-hour meeting of which three and three-quarter hours was taken up with NFT. That shows you how significant the issue is. I know that some clubs think gung ho, we've got to do this. It's brilliant. It's a, it's a, you know, you've got to do it. We can't not do it. No brainer. We've got to move ahead. Others are saying, well, a, what is it? How does it work? Can you reassure us that this is actually a viable concept? And there's another group who's saying, yeah, we we understand that, but this isn't morally right. We're taking liberties. Now, I know that football clubs, particularly Premier League clubs, don't tend to take moral stances, but they have done over Ukraine over the last couple of weeks in a way that I wouldn't have imagined. Uh, And even clubs that have, shall we say, debatable owners have joined completely and totally in with this stance on, on Ukraine. I think it's more likely than not they are going to go for it. I would say 80% realistically. Uh, but I'd be surprised if it's agreed before the summer meeting. Um, 
it might be done by the end of the month. There's two more Premier League meetings coming up uh, this month, and one of those will basically be an NFT meeting, the other will be a strategic review meeting, which is only 18 months overdue. Um, so I, it appears to be heading in that direction, but there are doubts. There is, there is questioning. There are those who are reluctant to commit and part of it is they've seen what's happened with these other some of the other NFTs that have disappeared. I see with, I'm reading today that the John Terry one has dropped 90% in value. It doesn't mean it won't bounce back. And if you look at crypto, it's gone up and down. You know, Bitcoin value has oscillated wildly. Like the stock market, you know, goes down 3%, goes up 4% over the last few days. So we've, we've seen that in other fields. But I do think there's a direction of travel there. I'm not entirely sold it's a great idea myself, but... I'm old and past it and don't quite understand. Although it was explained to me that theoretically you could own, say, the Aguero Gold mm. on your machine, on your laptop, on your smartphone, or if you wanted to, on a you know a, a little iPad you display on your wall at house and show all your mates. Look, look, that's that's I own that gold. But you don't own, own it outside of those specific specific <laughs> NFT rights. I mean, you you can't stop Sky showing it again. No. And anyone else can show it on from YouTube. Yeah. So you don't you don't own it, but you do own it. It's very odd. I was going to ask which Premier League NFT are you most looking forward to spending your sweet sweet Ethereum on? <laughs> oh, there's been some big ones. I think mm. uh, I, I've won an absolute howler, actually, to sum up football. I just some some ridiculous moment that that was uh, <laughs> that was worth laughing at. And there's been a few of those. Unfortunately, too many of them involve Spurs' defence, but let's not go too deeply into that. Martin, great stuff. Thanks a million for joining us this morning. Cheers. Bye-bye. Martin Lipton from the Sun there, uh, giving us some insight into that. Um, like, look, I, I, I think um, I'm not sceptical about the power of blockchain or uh, its benefits, but certainly this part of it, yeah, people have just got too much crypto. They don't know what to do with it. Is uh, possibly uh, my take on all of it. You're uh, an Ethereum stan, are you? Is that- um, uh, no, no, I'm, I'm not. A, I'm not a stan of any of these things. To, to be honest, like it, it does. I, I I agree to a point about um, about crypto, and there is definitely a, a whole subset of things that are allegedly going to be uh, useful in the real world in the not too distant future. Uh, whether or not that is going to be the case with NFTs. I'm not quite sure. Um, and I was pining all my hopes on John Terry and his business model. Uh, you know, like the... John like the, Terry's apes. Who knew that that would just John, be a house of cards? John Terry investing in board apes was like John Duggan and virtual insanity. I would just follow the uh, the smartest man in the room. And unfortunately, uh, John Terry has uh, has let me down big time here. So there will be no board apes for the kids this Christmas. At 8.41, it's time for the papers. There are so many idiots out there, so many spoofers. There's a lot of horse. I think he's a total spoofer. What do you mean a spoofer? He's a bullshit. Ah, no, Emma, come on, don't don't be, no, no, no. Ah, you can't say that. (laughs) Ah, you can't say that. Um... Uh, the OTB brief is uh, our lead story on the website at the moment all positive feeling in English rugby is wrapped around Marcus Smith this was Wednesday Night Rugby this week um, official Stephen Kenny signs new Republic of Ireland contract Peter Dooley swaps Leinster for Connacht says he wants more game time he's 27 plenty of time for him to make it as a top tier prop as well the best scenario for Pochettino is Madrid this summer that was yesterday's show Graham talking to us uh, it's going to be interesting to see if what happened last night significantly alters 
the outcome in that. Yeah, one of the in- other interesting nuggets from Graham's piece yesterday was he described the refereeing as a robust North European style. And so approved. Yeah. I mean, Benzema bouncing off Donnarumma. And this is the Bernabeu, strange things happen. Yeah, yeah, he did. Uh, he was pretty on the money, to be fair. I thought I thought that meant that maybe some of the refereeing decisions would be dodgy. Um, was the, were, the, were, all the off, were all the offsides offside? Definitely. There's one I didn't see a replay of. Which one? On the PSG side? Yeah. Uh, no, I think, they, I think they were, okay. weren't they? There was no, no controversy about it. And certainly the one... Um, Certainly, Hakimi played Benzema onside for the second or third goal. I can't remember. Which is yeah, the, this is uh, too far. It's the, the back of the Times. It's the, a picture. Um, Owen Slot's writing today about how Eddie Jones must learn from the Irish. England far behind Farrell's team in terms of total rugby. I see what you're doing there, Owen. You're telling everybody that we've got the better coach, and ooh, look, he happens to be English, and so therefore, you know, screw this Razzie to England after the next World Cup. It's like come and get Andy Farrell, but hands off. Mm. Hands off! We're going to give Andy Farrell a job for life after he wins the World Cup for us, right? That's what that's going to be. Yeah, yeah. Um, but the picture is of Tyg Furlong, and it's one of those not quite no look, but it's one of those passes where his his hand position doesn't look like if you were to do a spot the ball with his hand position there, you would never get it right. It actually reminds me a little bit of uh, Matt Williams' description of Shane Warren's little finger that we had on the show the other morning where the ball comes out over the back of his little finger and he was he actually had a ball to show what it was like it it looks like I'm not saying he has Shane Warren's ball skills but like you know under the circumstances under the circumstances where there are other 120 kilo men trying to smash you his ball handling skills are absolutely remarkable yeah, he is. He's absolutely sensational. Would you say he's part of the best front row in the world, Owen? Would you? Would you say he's part of the best front row in the world? Interesting. So give me, give me the, the kind of the influences behind that accent first of all before, before I answer. It's made up. <laughs> uh, like I mean, I think everybody just got to put in the word starting. You'd say he's the starting best best front row in the world. The whole, the whole, the whole three. The best. Uh, do I have to talk back in that accent? Best starting uh, tight head in the world, right? Oh, he's definitely like yeah. no, the, he is world class. There's no doubt about that. That yeah. means if you're picking a team of the best players in the world, he's your, he's your tight head. So one one third of the take is definitely correct. <laughs> They're one third of the the best uh, <laughs> starting front row in the world, aren't they? All right, Hugo. Eight forty four this morning. Um, a friend of mine did say that. Uh, his kids were doing two sports recently. The under under sevens, maybe under sixes, whatever. And one's GEA, and one is rugby. And there was like five Hugos, <laughs> <laughs> and there was none in the in the GEA. I don't I don't know what that says. I don't think it says anything. I don't think there's a there's no there's no comment. There's no hot take no, there. I would I would say that you know the way like they have like these congregations of like say ginger people or people named with the same name. The, the world's biggest convention of people named Hugo is Ireland against France in rugby union. <laughs> Hugo and Ugo everywhere you look. <laughs> <laughs> Ugo Uge. 8.45 this morning, Carl Milani is with us. Carl, good morning to you. Good morning, lads. How are we? We're good. We're a bit giddy. Yeah, I can sense it. <laughs> uh, interesting case study that would be, on. Yeah, I mean, I, I was just hoping for you to that's, come in with uh, that's, that's sort of Hugo That's worth some uh, financing for a scholarship or something like that. I think so. But, 
What, yeah. What's going on? Well, lots going on. Um, you've been talking about the Champions League last night. Paris Saint-Germain crashed out of the competition. They surrendered a 2-0 aggregate lead to lose 3-2 to Real Madrid in their last 16. Ty Kareem Benzema scoring a hat-trick there for the winners to give them a 3-1 win on the night. Elsewhere, Manchester City confirmed their quarter-final place following a nil-all draw with Sporting. Pep Guardiola side advanced 5-0 on aggregate. Premier League action uh, tonight. Jesse Marsh takes charge of Leeds for the first time at Ellen Road. They host Aston Villa from a quarter to eight. Three games underway from half seven. Bottom side Norwich take on Chelsea. Wolves play Watford and Southampton welcome Newcastle to St Mary's. So all of those games pretty important in terms of the bottom uh, five places in the table. West Ham meanwhile travel to Sevilla. That's in the first leg of their Europa League last 16 tie tonight. Their Spanish opponents of course have won that competition a record six times. The Scottish champions Rangers, they beat Borussia Dortmund pretty impressively in the last round. They're at home to Red Star Belgrade and in the Conference League tonight it's Leicester versus Rennes. Uh, the Ireland rugby team for Saturday's game against England will be named later on today. Johnny Sexton could be in line to return to the team for the game at Twickenham on Saturday and as I say head coach Andy Farrell will name a starting side later this morning in uh, some golf news this morning some live golf news actually Leona Maguire is seven shots off the lead on two under par that's after her first round at the Honda LPGA in Thailand the three players shared the lead there on nine under Maguire carded two birdies and 16 pars in her bogey free round of 70 this morning meanwhile Rory McIlroy is confident he can challenge at the players championship when it gets underway later the down eight was in the field alongside Shane Larry and Seamus Power at TPC Sawgrass the first players are due out on course there shortly before 12 noon Irish time and last night an emotional Tiger Woods paid tribute to his family and team as he was inducted into the World Golf Hall of Fame the 15 time major champion was introduced by his 14 year old daughter Sam who described the scary moments after her father's car crash last year that left him with serious injuries uh, in tennis news this morning Novak Djokovic has confirmed he won't play in the Indian Wells tournament due to his coronavirus vaccine status the 20 time Grand Slam champion has not had the, va- the jab meaning rules prevent him from from entering the United States and he's also set to miss the Miami Open and finally there's racing at Thurless this afternoon lads the first they're going to post at 10 to 2 the uh, the probables team or the possibles team rather that um, Terry Thorny had in the Irish Times was interesting Peter Manny starting in, in his team uh, Keane Healy was starting and obviously Sexton started so there's mm. no doubt about that but uh, what do we think is going to happen who's going to start yeah, well, Sexton's definitely going to start, I think. Um, Healy probably into the front row, you would think. is, And then, obviously, Ian Henderson, does he come back in? Henderson's on the bench. Yeah. So it's Byrne and Ryan starting. Omani, Van der Fleer, and Caelan Doris is at eight, which means that Jack Conan is on the bench. Mm. And Bundy Aki starts. The wingers? The wingers are Andrew Conway and James Lowe. So, That's Matt Hansen gets yeah. dropped. Yeah. He's gone back to November for his winger. So, That's the bitter Manny thing there is the the big storyline especially if he's suggesting that Jack Conan's going to be on the bench he hasn't necessarily heard that there is an additional injury in the back row like Conan Doris van der Fleer you go with your best back row for, for this England match so something's obviously changed it seems or else there's something specific about Peter Matney that he sees in this weekend mm. like it, it it does feel that I mean the he thinks that, that Dor- yeah. so Doris played 8 against yeah. Italy and that Conan came off after 52 minutes in Paris and so therefore that so was Matney's actually the next best 6 yeah yeah, fair enough. Fair enough, I guess, if that's, if that's the logic behind it. And I do think that there's been maybe a little bit of a rush to uh, arrive at the point that Peter Matney has nothing to, to give to Ireland anymore. I don't think, guys, we're definitely not there. Like, no. you, you, you have him around the squad, uh, definitely on the bench and potentially starting games like this, and no one, no one bats an eyelid. Like, yeah, I think so. Like, it, like and it's, I guess the question around it is, has been that we're, we've got such an amount of depth in the Ireland back row 
at the moment that there is bound to be a better option but I'm not sure if that's the case at the present maybe it will be come World Cup but it seems that himself and Conor Murray have both been thrown into this position now where it's like they're fighting for their position in the, the match day 23 every week and who is the captain if Sexton goes off then is it automatically still James Ryan is that the plan or when Peter Manny's out there like yeah. no I'm, I'm captain good question presume it's Ryan considering he's been there already this season does that make him is he technically vice-captain or do they have vice-captains I don't know they it's a like leadership group yeah. yeah it's interesting I suppose the, the experience factor there's been a lot of talk I think about the crowd and the atmosphere in Twickenham hasn't there before this game I, more so than any other matches that I can remember in Twickenham in terms of size and the crowd and the factor that's going to be I suppose with a full stadium um O'Mahony obviously has vast experience so maybe that's going to play into things if he is selected in the starting team but Owen's right in terms of the depth at Ireland that they have going to Twickenham now you know he would be relatively confident I think uh, famous last words but uh, hopefully that they can put in a performance mm. It does feel a little bit like uh, we've got to a point where we're expecting a win at the weekend which is uh, it's just such a, a dangerous thing when you look at the, the history of Ireland in, 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 in Twickenham but uh, like I mean you're showing your, your arms this team's not a very good England team they're not that interested in this game they're more interested in the World Cup we have to go and win yeah you're, you're showing we're, your arms we're, we're picking our best team yeah, they're I, not picking their best team like I, I know that but I do Come think on. That the, if we lose to this team I, I wonder is there still a bit of uh, is there still a bit of uh, 2018 hype which I was as guilty of more than anybody else post 2018 hype post 2018 hype that that we're still kind of feeding into here but you not remember we went to Twickenham and we absolutely killed them to win the Grand Slam and it was never in doubt and in the build up to that it was like this isn't the best England team they're missing they were missing Tuolagi that day they were missing both the Vinopolas that day like there's a style of England that beats us yeah and this is not that style of England they can't do it with the players that they have Mm. uh, but the players that they do have uh, are still a very good team they're not the great team that's going to possibly get to a World Cup final next year um, now I do think in fairness I mean Eddie Jones is probably looking at next year's World Cup draw and saying to himself well this is a winnable tournament or is, is it one where he can get to a final whereas we on the other hand look at uh, the Ireland draw and say to ourselves well I mean even we'll if they're well, yeah. flying uh, there's yeah, every the chance they lose yeah. the exact same stage yeah um, but no, I think that I think Jerry's right that we do have to go there with a certain degree of confidence to try and win the game. Obviously, and England probably are at a different stage of their development, as you say, in terms of looking towards the World Cup next year. But for, from Ireland's point of view, I mean, performance is absolutely key here, and it would be a big statement to go there and win and set you up nicely for the last round. Obviously, and obviously, um, if uh, Wales could do us a favour on on Friday night as well, it set things up really, really nicely. All right, OTBIM is brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish to your day. It is eight fifty-two this morning. The hurling pod with Paul Murphy, James Scahill, and Willow Callahan will be available every Monday across the course of the season. It's been a dramatic few weeks in the hurling leagues we kind of expected the leagues to tip away nicely and not have too many storylines but it's full of storylines um, some very interesting stuff from Neil McManus talking about the Ulster Hurling Championship uh, this week um, it was the BBC's GAA podcast he was talking about it and just basically saying the Ulster Council it's their fault that there is no Ulster Hurling Championship and I don't know I think it feels a little bit like uh, hurling in the middle tier counties is undergone something of a renaissance when it comes to attention partly because of the, the characters involved like on the field and off the field and I don't know it feels like if they all just got together and decided no we're going on strike unless you actually fix this or we're going to do something radical unless we get help that um, there's an opportunity there for them right now to, to seize the day but anyway we'll come back to that because uh, obviously Limerick are the, the a, a story in all of this here's Paul Murphy and why he is actually a little bit worried about Limerick's 2022 form 
you know, seeing them in the All-Ireland final last year, you were just saying, there's so many questions for teams to answer here before you have a chance to take a scalp off Limerick. But like what James is saying there, I think they just, they're flat, they're flat line in a small bit. Um, you know, Seamus Flanagan did, a, did an interview a few years ago and he, he stated like, you know, that Limerick work harder than everyone else and that's why, they are, and I agree with him, like they do work harder and they're so intense in how they play. And even I saw Tom Condon over the weekend, he was saying that Paul Knurk, when he's training them, he, he believes that they train at 120% so that, you know, whatever that is, so that when it comes to a match, you've actually trained harder. And, you know, I know a lot of coaches would believe that. But at the moment, that doesn't seem to be what's happening. I mean, they're, they're being outworked, and that's the bottom line. And if they're priding themselves on the work rate, the one thing, and I think it's one thing that John Kiley will, will be looking for, kind of going, okay, lads, I don't mind if there's lads hitting whites here. I don't mind, you know, any of those things or lads making the odd mistake. But being outworked is an attitude. You know, that's, if, if you're being outworked, it's not because things didn't go your way. You can always run hard for a ball. You can always put in a tackle. You can always track back. You can always support. Okay, if you don't raise a ball or you don't, you don't put a ball over the bar, that comes down to the skill and that's not an attitude problem. That's just maybe in confidence, whatever. But they're being outworked. I saw several instances as well where players were being isolated, which is not a thing we associate with them. If the player would get a ball, out, you know, Colin Cochran be out in the wing, he gets a ball into the hand, hit by three clear players, and then he can't get a pass away because there's no one necessarily there supporting. That's something we've seen. And I think it's something teams are looking at now. Probably the two teams teams are bringing to the Limerick uh, when they're playing Limerick is one, hit them before they, they get their heads up. So if they get a ball into their hand, there has to be lads hitting them. And then the second one then is, as we've seen at Arangelan, get under their skin, poke at them, whatever. And we do see even players, I suppose, look, players getting the dig and, and another fellow wouldn't go down, but some players are going down and highlighting it to referee. And that's what's, to me, that's saying that, you know, the, the, the plan is there to get under Limerick's skin. Limerick are buying it. So every team is going to just keep doing it. And if you have to sell it to the referee a little bit, as, as teams are kind of doing, they're doing it. But, um, there for me the two things that we're seeing with Limerick at the moment they're being a little bit outworked and teams are getting under their skin so it's just they have to look at that and see how they're going to address it It seems it seems fixable it seems like it's the type of thing that Limerick you know it's a league campaign it's not that important to them in the grand scheme of things really because they know exactly what it takes to win All-Ireland so um, you know fixable Yeah it also feels that like the game is a little bit different between the league and the championship let alone the standards of teams like I remember last year and I'll admit that you know we got a bit carried away with the standard of hurling in the league at the start of last year especially when it came to a lot of long range free taking that it just became a, a sense of who can who can score the longest free and that was it and come to summer I felt that that didn't matter at all it, no, do, it, it does the feel that totally different yeah completely yeah, dry, different yeah. and it's like not, not only is Limerick going to be better but the game is going to be different totally and you might be allowed to throw the ball again in the summertime you can search for the hurling pod hit subscribe in its own podcast feed that's the fastest way to get it or you can get it on OTB GA every Monday you'll get all of our GA there across OTB AM and off the ball uh, including the football pod of Paddy Andrews and James O'Donoghue on Tuesdays from 6am they uh, they meet up at midnight on Monday night and they start recording and they don't stop until 6am so it's 6 hours of um, uh, Paddy Andrews and James O'Donoghue and Tommy Rooney goodness coming your way Will good morning to you morning lads how are you getting on your recording schedule isn't quite uh, so punishing but you are available every Monday yeah, yeah we're a little bit more casual we kind of record when the guys finish work on a Monday afternoon get the podcast out hopefully around 6 or 7 o'clock depending on how long we bladder on for during the podcast itself and then we premiere on YouTube at around about noon on Tuesday as well Tommy obviously I mean probably really should have been a midfielder 
but decided that he wanted to be the glory with the collar up full forward Eric Cantona slash Beckham always going on about boots you know he, he definitely fancies himself as a fancy down forward you have decided that your podcast is going to be a goalkeeper and a teak tough uh, cornerback who you know basically won an all-star every year for the first three or four years that he, he came along so it, what does this speak to about your character? Uh, I think it speaks to the fact that I ended up getting stuck in goals a lot when I hurled uh, Jared for a start. I kind of played full forward at the start and then slowly but surely as your skills aren't that useful outfield, you get graduated into goals to try and just uh, stop the ball going in and poking the ball out. So uh, myself and Skehel are kind of kindred spirits in that regard. And the good thing about having two defenders on, as we spoke about in this week's pod, is they will tell you about the dark arts and the fact that Skehel says if he was going in against Limerick currently, given that they've had three red cards in their first four games and that some of their players have reacted to uh, provoking from other players he says he would do everything possible he would talk about players girlfriends and rumours about them into their ear uh, while he's marking them playing for him <laughs> to do anything possible uh, to try and get them sent off now Paul Murphy to his credit was the complete opposite we've got the devil on one side and we've got an angel on the other he said he never sledged against a player and that sledging is for football as opposed to for hurling so he said always it was a case of being more physically prepared than the players around you and just mark them tight he also gave the insight that two of the best players of all time attack Hacking-wise, and Seamus Callan and Joe Canning don't talk to their markers at all during the game. He was saying they're two players who never get up in your face. They never kind of over-celebrate when they've scored a point because he reckons you're only going to inspire your marker if you actually do that. So it's often counterproductive. Yeah, and uh, like, I mean, it's a completely different skill set. Just because you're a great hurler doesn't mean you can talk shit good. You know, like, I mean, you, you come across as like Charlie Nicholas. Like, yeah, well, you should have gone to Specsavers, Jeff, on the way to the, onto the game. Um, like, uh, so it's a skill and I'd like to think that anybody who does it like stands in front of the mirror for a while and like chat shit for a while and and actually figure out style. yeah it's the only yeah. it's the only way. I've no doubt it happens and again Paul was commenting on the fact that in hurling it's slightly different to football where your marker it happens from time to time but it's unlikely your marker is going to score up the other end but defenders will often do that in hurling if it's a wing back or a cornerback they'll go on a run and put it over from 80 yards out and he was saying Jerry Elward was one of those where he was getting crap from his marker one day next thing he did he just flattened him went up put the ball over the bar I think people remember the rock doing that once upon a time as well breaking out from full back hits a couple of men and then bangs it over from pretty much his own 45 so in hurling you can actually punish an attacker who's doing their best to wind you up as well so that's all within the conversation in the hurling pod this week and the lads definitely feel that Limerick can be got at and the more this ends up in the commentary after games that Limerick have had a red card or this decision has happened and John Kiley's questioning a second yellow card or a red card there's going to be that feeling that Limerick can be got at as the year goes on as well I I felt that last year though because they had a similar fractured every game there was like a pitched battle physically and metaphorically and then come the championship and I, I, I don't know if everybody had completely forgotten the Tipperary game what would have happened if that crowd was full that day right mm. like I looking back on it there are some people at the game but I think it's like 30% capacity or it feels like it's 30% if even and so it's quite spread out but the game looks over at half time I think it's 2.13 to 9 points or something or 10 points it's like well it's going to be very difficult for them to come back from this Glance should have been sent off what's going to happen and then they put together possibly the greatest 35 minutes of hurling you're ever going to see yeah, like it's it definitely felt that Sheedy was maybe trying to maybe make up for uh, a lack of crowd. 
and the, the sort of uh, impassioned uh, plea to his players, you know, get get out there and, and keep this thing going. And that was at half time on the uh, field. On the field, uh, that was, or was that the water break? Will might have a better recollection. I think it's half time. Half time. It was definitely something that yeah. we saw on the field, and uh, may, maybe even in his head, it was a, a sense of right. Okay, this is a, a very interesting position that we're in. Got to got to do everything here to, to ensure that we keep doing this. And maybe deep down, he knew what was going to come in the second half. Yeah, it felt that day as if they were on the ropes as well. And then, as Jer mentioned, they put in a most stunning second-half performance, which they weren't quite able to do in 2019 when they were hit hard in a similar way by Kilkenny in a semi-final, where they were almost left with too much to do in the second half. And yet this Limerick team found a way to get back to a very controversial decision exactly. at the end, yeah. where that game could have went extra time. So yeah. that's like that has to be a thing if you're a Limerick supporter, you would take heart from right now. First four games of the league they're the lowest scorers in the top two flights in Division 1A and Division 1B they're only averaging 16 scores a game at the moment which is so on Limerick like and we thought last week it was going to click back in because you had seven or eight of the frontline players coming in to start it's definitely the strongest starting 15 that they've used in the league so far and yet Clare probably should have beaten them in Ennis Limerick were probably lucky enough to get out with a point the joy of it is for Limerick and this is where I'll bemoan the structures of the National Hurling League and Malky Clerken wrote very well about it in the Irish Times last weekend on Saturday is that there's minimal danger for Limerick. They just have to avoid defeat against an awfully team who've taken heavy enough beatings from everybody so far and they're not in the relegation playoff. And even if they do drop into it, it's a one-off game at a neutral venue against Antrim. So the chances of Limerick being relegated are almost minimal by comparison to, say, a football team in Division 1 where if they have a bad start and play poorly in their first four games, they're almost certainly going to Division 2. And the football teams aren't going into another league uh, in a couple of weeks' time. So, like, you compound that with the thing that you just mentioned there, Will, and it just makes the, the hurling league a, a little bit uh, unsatisfying. But at the same time, all these storylines are here. Yeah, I, but it's good. I, maybe it's good because we actually get to know a good bit more about these teams and the characters involved, and uh, we get to do a bit more of a deep dive as opposed to the smack bang. Okay, this is really... Like, the Munster... Those Munster games... A very good team we won't see uh, in a quarterfinal this year, like at this stage. Or, or, yeah, or pot- potentially the best hurler in the country we won't see if Clare don't make it. Yeah, like I think there's interesting stories going into both of the round robins in that Munster looks like it's shaping up to be ridiculously competitive at the top because of the way the Cork and Waterford have been playing. And you could argue at this stage that Waterford have maybe got the most complete looking panel. Like when I see Jack Fagan, who was a star ball winning forward for the last couple of seasons, playing at wing back for Waterford currently. And that's before Waterford get Jamie Barron back to full fitness and back into the team. The Mahoney's coming back in after Ballygunner. They seem all of a sudden, with the way that they've played and with the very intense conditioning, we saw the way they blew Tipperary away in the final quarter at the weekend, that Waterford now look like a really strong team going into championship, that they're in a really good place. And like we spoke last week about the fact that, you know, Cork followed it up with the win against Galway at the weekend, where Cork have started the season flying as well. That if they can bring that form in, there's no reason they can't beat Limerick in the first round of the Munster Championship. And next thing, Cork are then well placed to qualify, and Limerick are almost up against the eight ball after the first round to get out of Munster, such as the competition that's there. And then in Leinster, I defy anybody who can call who's going to win the Leinster Championship or get to the final at this stage because Dublin had looked really impressive, came off the back of winning at Temple Stadium and then got blown away by Kilkenny who won by 13 points on Saturday at Parnell Park. Now, there'll be plenty who'll feel that's the real Dublin, that maybe we're getting a fake impression of Dublin in the first three games and then when Dublin go to a big game and the pressure is put on them they revert back to being a little bit flaky like they were against Cork last year or maybe is it an off night for Dublin and then you get Kilkenny who've kind of slowly built and still have got some key players to come back in most notably of course TJ Reid when he gets back from his honeymoon to add in that little bit of star power into their forward line 
It becomes very, very difficult to work out what the established order is in Leinster right now. I don't know if you detected a little note of excitement in Tommy Walsh's voice when he was talking to Joe during the week about the spine of the team and uh, the quality of players that they're getting and the, the, the fact that some of the players coming into the team have been playing in clubs that are playing very progressive hurling which is going to keep ball possession and they're ready to go for the new style and that maybe Cody's building a new team again I mean it would be ridiculous if he was able to pull that off like any, I'm, anything. Sure Co- I'm sure Cody is delighted as well Jared, that all the conversation now is about how Cork and Wexford are going the fact that Limerick are having their struggles Kilkenny have still won three games out of four they won the games they were expected to win and then beat Dublin at Parnell Park they've got a perfect setup this weekend or the weekend uh, to come because they play against Waterford at home with a chance to beat Waterford and potentially qualify for the semi-finals of the league I don't think Kilkenny would be too disappointed if they didn't qualify but they want to beat Waterford at home in any game in any competition and slowly but surely some of the players they've blooded start to look really impressive like Blanchfield looks like a real find at wing back this year I think he's been brilliant in the games that I've watched uh, Kilkenny on the TV and they've just gone about their business very very nicely and I thought last week watched the game against Dublin they mix it up well as Tommy says they're able to introduce a bit of a transition with the way that they're passing the ball around at the same time they've got the athleticism and the power like they had with Walter Walsh for his goal at the weekend and that's a fairly potent mix that Kilkenny have coming together and we very quickly forget they're the back to back Leinster champions going into this season Can I just say as well it would be remarkable if Cody did get one more All-Ireland given what he potentially has to work with like I'm not sure if Kilkenny are doing more to bring those players through who don't make the grade at underage level but like the fact is that they haven't won an All-Ireland minor title since 2014 and under 21 slash under 20 since 2008 like they haven't had underage success at all over the last eight years they haven't got a title whereas you look at Cork and Limerick and uh, how they've managed to well we, we expect Cork to build on underage success Limerick have already done so and Kilkenny if you're just judging it on, under, on underage titles haven't got the same bedrock of players so if Cody was to turn around another All-Ireland in, the, in that context I think he'd deserve a hell of a lot of credit He really would because this one feels more like a rebuild than some of the rebuilds previously like going yeah. from the team that almost went five in a row it was a case of only having to find a few players here and there and kind of slowly but surely reintroducing stars into the team and like TJ Reid was there ready to take over from Shefflin once Shefflin retired uh, this time round this feels like a proper rebuild even since 2019 mm. and you're right to point out that the underage success has been elsewhere Galway, Cork particularly in recent years have had a production line of teams who have been going to All-Ireland finals and winning competitions yeah. Kilkenny yeah. just haven't had that You ask though about the value of all those underage All-Irelands for a Galway perspective and it doesn't automatically follow that the team that wins like you might be as well having a team that suffers a defeat in an All-Ireland final or an All-Ireland semi-final where two of the players are actually going to be truly great players who make it and have 10-year careers at senior level. Yeah, like I, I agree with that to a point. I also think, though, that the, the under-20s had become like a really good barometer. Maybe minor, you can forget. But, like, I mean, you look at Limerick 2015 and 2017, All-Ireland champions at under-21 level, and, and, and look at them now, and I, I think that that's been a, a really good Yeah, Limerick barometer. obviously put a massive investment in, and yeah. they took over the city back from rugby, and all that kind of stuff was happening at the same time that brought that success, as opposed to it being something that kind of came out of nothing, and they used that as... Yeah, I, I get that, but at the same time, like Kenny, three under twenty one All Irelands in the nineties, four under twenty one All Irelands in the two thousands. They haven't won anything since two thousand and eight, as I say, at, at under twenties. I do think it counts for something. 
again minor you can maybe take or leave but at that level especially with hurling I think it's it's quite telling Alright OTBIM brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish to your day Will good stuff thanks very much for that more from the hurling pod uh, through Will and the lads every Monday morning uh, here's what we've got on OTB Sports Radio today at 1 o'clock OTB Golds uh, Barry Ryan The Ascent uh, leaders questions from 3 our retro panel is the competitive obsession at 4 Chris Heron interview is OTB Gold tonight the story of the uh, guy who got uh, drafted by the Celtics and uh, ended up a heroin addict it's an incredible story and a, a story of recovery as well so it's a, it's a positive story in the end uh, and then the show tonight live it's Thursday it means John Giles and plenty more with Nathan from 7 o'clock this evening up next we're looking at this weekend's Gaelic football with former Mayo star Colin Boyle OTB AM Sam Walsh is their most talented footballer like Hands down, one of the most talented footballers in the country. When you see what he did at the weekend to Cork and he left Matty Taylor for, for dust, as we saw, and buried that goal, it was just awesome to watch. And he's done things like that. Freakishly impressive things on a Gaelic football pitch, but maybe just not consistently enough. Do you think that Keane O'Neill would go in and be able to positively influence Shane Walsh's career and bring him on to that next level that he needs to get to? I do. I do. I think that Keane would have gone in there with that in mind, with Shane Walsh in mind even, and trying to get an extra bit out of him. Um, and he, did, he enjoys taking on kind of the, the big players and the big personalities and trying to, to drag more out of them. Do you know, I think that, I think that Shane Walsh will, will have got a boost out of, out of Keane going in there. Okay. But like I, like uh, through the grapevine, I heard over the last year or two that training in, in Galway wasn't spectacular. So it didn't need <gasps> to go in there. Who's so, called it? Name names. Jimmy's <laughs> sources. Episode one. Who's your sources, Jimmy? Yeah, Can't reveal them. Joyce's uh, got me looking for you, Jimmy. Mayo fella told me. <laughs> well, Lauren, no, well, but like you, you can have the best players in the world. If the training is not absolutely exceptional, you, you mightn't get there at all. Do you know? That's really interesting. Um, and obviously, James, I don't have personal experience of... Uh, Keane O'Neill's training regime and, and what it was like and to hear the impact that it might have on Galway that would be worrying for everybody else Yeah, like it's he, he's obviously somebody who's um, got a, a, whole, a whole wealth of experience working with a, a range of different teams over the last little while I do think that maybe the way Kildare went uh, made I guess lowered his stock a little bit and Galway are taking fine advantage of it at the moment I'm not necessarily sure if uh, it's a situation where he's, he's better as a behind the scenes uh, person involved in a setup or as a manager it might well have just been a situation where he didn't have the players or didn't have the right setup at Kildare to succeed so I think the jury's still out on that a little bit but I think Galway probably spotted what he had done behind the scenes especially with Kerry uh, over the last uh, few years and, and thought right we can, we can get someone in here who will really contribute positively so I think it's a bit of a steal Well I mean, if he has the same impact he's had in various other places, people forget that he was in Tip Hurlers. That's where yeah. that I think that was the first intercounty job, was it? I think so. And then Mayo, yeah, right? Mayo, yeah. And then and Kerry. Then Kerry and, then and then the Kildare job, wasn't it? And then Cork for a bit. Now Galway. So um, he's obviously um, based in CIT, so that, that made the, the Cork situation work. Um, so. Yeah, like I mean, he's, he's he's definitely one of the more notable coaches here. It's interesting that himself and Stephen Rochford have are probably two of the more notable people who've gone from front of house to behind the scenes in inverted commas over the last little while. That they were obviously maybe recognised their own skill set better than anybody else. Yeah. Okay. So that was uh, this week's episode of the Football Pod, episode seven of season two. You can listen to it right now and every Tuesday. 
across the OTB podcast network. Um, uh, the fixtures this weekend, Armagh against Kildare in... Oh, there you go. Yeah, Armagh against Kildare um, is tomorrow at 6. Sorry, this is not Friday. I am very giddy. This is Thursday. <laughs> it is on Saturday at 6. And then Kerry and Mayo is in Austin Stack Park. You going to that? Yeah. Half 7 on Saturday night, isn't Half it? Half 7 Saturday night. And then, uh, obviously, the Dubs are playing on... Sunday against Tyrone in Oma knowing they'll know the result of the Kildare-Armagh game which let's face it Armagh are favourites for so they should win that Armagh like you know supposedly the third best team in the division you would make them strong favourites to win that game still watch it like I mean if I mean, you know, it's only on the if I get a geo block I'll be watching it but uh, like I'm interested in their results. I don't, I don't think any of those games this weekend are uh, are kind of like are, are gimmies. Sorry, uh, and this, like I think they're proven with the win the last day that that's not going to be the case against Armagh, who maybe come off a little bit after their their early form at the start of the league. All right, Colin Boyle is with us this morning. Colin, good morning to you. How are you getting on? All right, lads. How are you? Yeah, good. Um, thanks for joining us. We were talking there about the impact that Keane O'Neill might have on Galway. James O'Donoghue was saying that he thinks it could be a shot in the arm for the training um, coming out of Galway and that somebody like Shane Walsh in particular might benefit from his influence. You you would have personal experience of the impact that he might have on a setup. Is that something that Galway might have been missing and therefore might be a bit of a game changer for them? Where... Um, <laughs> the answer is yes. Yeah, that was uh, one of those um, the voice things that. Who had one of those famous things? What was the most famous, famous pop culture version of one of those? Darth Vader. Apart from Darth Vader. Anyway, somebody will tell us. Just a bit of problem with the Skype line there, so. Yeah. Um, sorry, so the fixtures you were going through them uh, for the weekend. Yeah, so are you not like legitimately. The Kieran McGinley Derby, yeah, for for Kildare at the weekend. I know, obviously, you saw up close and personal how good McGinley can be as a as a manager. But like Kildare riding are riding a wave at the moment. I don't, I don't think Amara's heavy favourites as you might think. Uh, well, they're two point favourites, and I'm obviously hyping them, hyping the shite out of them. Just you've learned, you've learned my a lot. job. You're, you're good at yearing, I guess. Kildare Mafia is finally being born here. Yeah. Um, yeah. Just I'm just following in your footsteps, on That's okay. Standing on the shoulders of giants. Yeah, there is no mafia, of course. We should state. Well, obviously, the, the denial of the existence is the first rule of Fight Club. Yeah. Uh, so then on Sunday, it's, it's um, uh, Donegal Monaghan in Bally Buffet and then Tyrone versus Dublin. It, the way the games are staggered actually works out really well for Dublin, so they'll know exactly what they need to do in terms of relegation and stuff like that. Uh, but again, like, I don't think it matters. Piece with Paul Beale in, in the paper yesterday, I think Paul Keane wrote it, where he was talking with Beelan and Beelan had forgotten that Dublin had been relegated in 95 before they went on to win the All-Ireland it's like oh, that's a good point I'd forgotten about that yeah like it doesn't matter it doesn't I guess did, did Donegal do something similar in, in 92 as well I don't um, know getting relegated or, or at least winning it from the second tier I might be completely wrong on that one uh, or maybe it was actually 2012 that that, that actually happened in but it, it, it's rare and the times it's happened have been memorable because it's rare and I think that maybe the league has gained an importance a little bit over the last 10 years in particular where getting relegated does dent your chances a little bit but it's all about context and as we said yesterday I mean the context of Mayo for example being in Division 2 was that they could turn it into a real positive because they were trying to bring through a whole new generation of players players and that accelerated the transition that James Horn instilled and the transition is almost complete now at this point. Dublin are going through the, the exact same thing so 
I'm not sure if they'll have the same level of quality in terms of the youngsters to bring through when they're in Division 2, if they're in Division 2 next year. But if they do, then that's a brilliant hunting ground for them. Yeah, exactly. So, Colin Boyle is with us now, I think. Colin, good morning to you. Good morning, lads. How are you? Yeah, no, loud, loud and clear. Um, we were talking about Keane O'Neill. We'll talk about the Dubs in a moment if we've got time at the end. But uh, what kind of an impact do you think he could have in Galway? Um, I think James spoke about it very well during the week there. Um, he will bring a level of professional, professionalism to them. There's no doubt about that. He's huge years of experience, um, even since he's been with us. So we had him for a year, obviously, in 2012. Um, and he moved on to Kerry then after that. So even since he would have been in with us in 2012, I'm sure he's developed He's developed further on and he's gained even more and more experience. And when I was kind of thinking about it during the week, I suppose when he, when he came in and took us in 2012, probably fairly similar scenario to the, to the Galway team now was in we would have had a, a mix of, of youth and experience and kind of older lads like possibly Damien Comer now and Shane Walsh who are really looking to push on and really looking to develop and then you obviously bring in your younger players and your newer players into that environment as well so I think Keane Keen would be really good for that um, He like Keane is He's, he's excellent, he's organised, he's really confident in, in his own ability, but in a good way. So when he's speaking, you know he, he you know what he's talking about, you know, and he he, he uh, directs his communication across very well. So look at it, he will be he will be brilliant uh, for them, there's no doubt about it, that. And like I said, with Paul Joyce coming into his third year now, it's probably what was needed um, in the Galway setup to bring in someone new, someone fresh, and someone that might be able to bring them in a, in a different direction. Yeah, it, it, now it's a really interesting and diverse group who are actually plodding the course. Like you can, it's it's great having somebody who is an absolute legend in Joyce, and you had Divley. Obviously, it seems like working on the the football side of things, and now you've got somebody else just to kind of add that that third pillar. And I'm sure there's other people who are important in the backroom team. But we, we talk about the uh, position of Galway versus everybody else on a weekly basis when we're doing the power rankings. And like they just, in recent years, have flattered to deceive. So you can't put them in the top tier until they actually beat a top tier team in White Hot Championship and go, right, we are actually legitimately contenders here. And that, that has been the big knock on them. Is there a possibility they could bridge that gap this year? Oh, there, there absolutely is Jerry. like you know it's well documented at this stage how open this year's championship is and you've just said that they're look, they're looking for one big win like that big win they'll be looking for that in six or seven weeks time against Mayo like if they win that game I'm sure the confidence that team will gain from that it would simply elevate them you know they go into a kind of final then on huge confidence and then I suppose the All-Ireland series where they really haven't been in the last 10 years or so to a certain extent perhaps prior to 2018 you know that's when the you know the the real test will come but I suppose at the minute we're all kind of wondering how good the, how good this Galway team is I think Division 2 definitely suits them this year especially with Keane coming in you know they brought in a good, uh, good crop of young players as well and new players a lot from the from the under 20 team that won the All-Ireland two years ago so like I said I think I think Division 2 is suiting them. I think they probably haven't played the best teams in Division 2 yet either. Um, so I think that their games are coming now. I think they've cleared this weekend, followed by Roscommon then and Derry. And then you're possibly looking at a league final um, after that. So these four kind of tougher games in Division 2 will probably tell us a bit more about Galway. 
And I think definitely that's a good run in for them, especially if they get to a league final and possibly win Division 2 well, in the lead up to the Mayo game. You know, you couldn't ask for a better warm up for Championship. You get to test yourself week on week on week against teams who are fairly similar standard, but who are going to put you to the pin of your collar. And then you have to step up the graduation to the Mayo game. Like if you were plotting a course, maybe you'd want an easier game in the middle there to try some stuff out. But actually, if you've got a fair idea of what your team is, they're going to be able to if all goes well for you you can go on a roll now and, and catapult yourself into the championship that's it sure. and look a winning game everyone knows that winning games breed confidence everyone you know if, if they were playing division one this year obviously wins are a lot harder to come by you might get two or three wins you know what I mean and they might be going into that male game you know not as confident you know if, as, as if they're after winning seven or eight games there in division two possibly win a division two title it's probably between themselves and Derry for, for that accolade but um, I think I think you're right in what you're saying there, just winning these games. And like Galway, you know, you said they're around the same standard. I think Galway will see themselves better than Division Two football. So they'll be just their full concentration of winning these games, literally getting through them, getting into Division One, and then it's full focus then on Mayo in, in seven weeks' time. And as a Mayo fan, putting aside the objectivity of being an analyst this morning for us, how worried are you? Ah, yeah, well, you'd have to say Galway are improving. There's no doubt about it, I suppose. But, like, it's it's an ideal scenario if you're, if you're thinking about that Mayo game in six or seven weeks' time. Like, it's an ideal scenario for, for a Galway at the minute that, that it's so little exposure TV-wise. No one is really sure how good or, or how good they aren't. Um, I'm sure Power Joyce is delighted with that. And they're just they're just plugging along, getting their wins. And like I said, with Keane O'Neill, they will be improving. Now they're going to come up against a good Mayo team and Mayo to win that game in six or seven weeks' time are, are, are going to be at, have to be at it. They're going to have to be 100%. And to me, it's it's the game of the championship, definitely early doors. OK, let's um, let's talk a little bit about how things are in, in Mayo at the moment. Um, I, it, however happy uh, the, the go-away management must be, the Mayo management must be, with the obvious exception of, uh, of Tommy Conroy's injury, relatively happy with the way things have gone so far in the league you know there's genuine strength and depth there's a bomb squad if they need it coming off the bench there's um, still more to come in the in the coming weeks we hope in terms of players returning so like quietly they've put together a great league they have yeah almost unexpectedly to be honest because I think they were generally laid back starting back into the into the new year um, had a tough a uh, couple of games on paper early doors but got the points from that and I think from that they would have gained confidence I think I think to date they've used 31 players which is which is a huge amount um, and they have made a lot of changes from the starting team from, from week to week so it's going to be really interesting to see what team James goes with on Saturday night I think this will be the strongest the strongest Mayo team uh, so far to date that lines out to release Saturday evening. I think it'll probably need to be uh, coming up, up against Kerry, probably the, the informed team in the country. Like, But if you go through the Mayo players at the minute that haven't really, like Brendan Harrison, Jason Jason Doherty, Owen McLaughlin, all played the first two games and haven't played since. Um, you have the likes of Darren Cohn, James Kerr, Killian O'Connor, um, who, who I wouldn't expect to see this weekend. I don't think he's going to be rushed. Um, who haven't gotten any game time yet. And then you have the likes of, obviously, Aidan O'Shea hasn't started the game yet. Kevin McLaughlin hasn't started the game yet. And, and Inda Hessian, after his breakthrough season last year, um, I'm sure he's pushing really hard in training to get a start. So you factor in all them players have to come back in as well. It's going to be really, like it's impossible really to pick the team for Saturday evening, um, which is probably a good thing, to be honest. Is Oshin Mullen marking Clifford? 
I, if I was a bet man, I'd say yeah. And I was actually just even thinking about potential matchups during the week. Um, I, I would say Oshin will go back on David Clifford. Yeah, you could have a scenario where Paddy Jarkman is on Sean O'Shea, Lee Keegan on, on uh, Paddy Clifford, and then you go to midfield, Jack Barry possibly on on um, Matty Ruan, Aiden O'Shea if he starts on Jeremy O'Connor and down the other end, then Ryan O'Donoghue on Tom O'Sullivan. So like all the matchups when you physically go through them just make it even more the game even more a uh, multi-watering prospect. Why do Mayo love playing in Tralee so much? <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know. You might be saying that on Saturday night, but uh, I think generally over the last 10 years or so we've had a fairly good record down there. I don't know. Generally when we've gone down there on, on a Saturday night we've We've tended to stay even on the on the Friday night down there, which makes it a bit of a, a long weekend. But maybe it's the case, the fact that you're together all weekend or something like that, and it gives you that bit of an edge when you get down there. I'm not sure. I'm not sure what the boys that are arrangements are this weekend if they're, they're traveling down that day or not. But possibly that has something to do with that. But it's a great venue. It's a great venue, and and when that's a full house, you know, and and I'm expecting it will be Saturday night a full house. It's a great atmosphere, and Mayo always brings a good crowd with that as well, and it adds to it. So. Yeah, I think generally maybe the fact that you're just together all weekend and look, Kerry's always a big game. You're always going to get yourself up for that and you'll probably raise your performance forward and possibly that's why Mayo had a, a decent record over there in the, in the last 10 years or so in, in the league. Um, I won't mention 2019 Killarney in the championship but uh, generally in the league yeah, it's, it's been decent. I don't think there's been a home winner in that fixture in a long, long time to be honest because Kerry have got a great record in Castlebar recently as well. What, what's interesting though is that if we, if we kind of like pluck out a couple of years here, Colm, is that say 2017, I remember Kerry were very confident going into that game against Mayo in Tralee and I think Andy Moran had uh, an outstanding game and, and Mayo come down and win that game but the important thing was that it seemed like it was relevant come the summertime that Kerry got a little bit spooked and Mayo should have put them away almost the first day in, in the All-Ireland semi-final never mind the, the replay that they won well in the end Yeah it is I suppose you know sometimes these league games can have a, a small bit of relevance I suppose the other flip side of that you know I talked about 2019 we, we bet Kerry in the league down there in 19 as well in Tralee hmm. We bet them in the league final and then obviously came to the Super 8 game in Killarney and they totally dismantled us. So it can work both ways as well. It's, it, it can be difficult to get the, the balance right. But you talked about that game there in 17 and Andy, like Andy in that performance, he probably spooked them so much, you know, even in the two games in the in the semi-finals. He, was, he brought that level them two games as well so yeah definitely you know for him marking the carry backs if you have a good game so just say for instance if Oshie Mullins managed to have a good game on David Clifford if they met again down the championship down the line of championship I'm sure he'd bring great confidence from that into the game and the same vice versa if Clifford obviously gets the better of Oshie it, it'd be similar for him down the line so these little kind of psychological factors probably do come into 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 play later on in the championship uh, can, can I ask you then about those championship games in, in 2017 Colin because I'd kind of forgotten until doing a bit of reading this morning that obviously I remember that you scored the goal uh, in the first game in the first half but that you were taken off after 48 minutes and there was this big conversation I'm sure you, you didn't see it at the time on, on social media about why was Colin Boyle taken off after 48 minutes it was almost as if it was a predetermined decision that it was based on, on GPS marks or something like that but what was the truth there? Uh, the truth was, we, we uh, you know, if you if you look at the player who actually came off for me that day, it was actually Paddy Durkin. Mm. Um, equaliser. Yeah. yeah, four or five minutes into injury time. So the truth was, we had a strong panel, and Stephen was util- utilizing the panel. Like I'd heard all things 
that the GPS that I wasn't clocking up enough on the GPS or that my hamstrings that because of 50 minutes uh, I had to go after 50 minutes because of my hamstrings even though I never had a hamstring injury in my life <laughs> you know what I mean so you, you hear all these sorts of things but I think generally it was the case that we had a strong panel you know there was great competition for the half back line in particular and team Lee Lee Keegan Donald Vaughan myself Paddy Durkin so it was literally a case of getting fresh legs in that that was all that was to it and there was a lot made at the time I know there was I was hearing it myself but right. it, that was generally it and then he leaves you on until I think the 69th minute the second day and you win so there must have been a lesson in there somewhere <laughs> yeah possibly so yeah yeah. so th- th- this weekend will you um, are you thinking it's going to be a Mayo win are you thinking it's going to be a, a sort of early marker is it going to be another another great really night for, for Mayo yeah it, it's difficult to tell like you know I think Kerry are the informed although both teams have the same amount of points I think Kerry are the informed team in, in the country at the minute if, if you even look at their, their margins of that they've won the games by uh, Monaghan Dublin and uh, Donegal like they've all been really really comfortable obviously Drew against Kildare again the first day but they have been really really comfortable Mayo's margins of victory have been an awful lot tighter Um I think Kerry have scored the most in the league and they've conceded the less in, in Division 1. So they are getting that balance right. Obviously, we all know that probably on paper they're the top six forwards in the country, but they definitely look to be getting that balance right in defence now. And Obviously, Jack O'Connor brought in Paddy Talley for a reason. Um, he probably felt that the, at the back was their Achilles heel and shipping scores. And at the minute, it looks like they've got that balance right. It looks like they're well set up. I wouldn't say they're getting a whole lot of bodies behind the ball or anything like that. I think it's just a case that their their work rate is up. They're hunting the ball in pack in packs, and uh, they're turning over ball around the middle of the field, and they're utilising then obviously their strength is obviously their their top six up front. One last question: you, you, You've obviously established that these games can have an impact later on in the summer. Is there any part of James Horan that isn't thinking? Or that is thinking, I'm not going to put my actual matchups that I will use in a championship match on display to give Kerry any tape. So I'm not going to give David Clifford the experience of being marked by Oshie Mullen. I'm not. I'm not going to do it. I'm just going to. I'm going to do something totally different, and maybe even just go zonal and not not reveal your hand. Yeah, look, at there's always that possibility, and the same the same from Jack O'Connor and his side. So there is that possibility. I I just think. I just think they they will they will match up as how they would plan if this was a championship game. I think they will. I think it, it'll line up something similar to what we what we call out earlier on. Now, you could be talking about this next week, and it could be it could be nothing like we talked about. But I, I think it will. I think because both managers want to win this game. Uh, Jack O'Connor, I'm sure he's probably mentioned during the week to the to the Kerry lads about kind of Mayo's record down there the last ten years and setting down a marker for for maybe later on in the year as well. So I think Kerry are going to be really, really up for this. So it's gonna it's gonna be a really, really tough game for Mayo. But look that it's a great game to have. It's a it's best, it's probably the top uh, game of the league so far. So like I said earlier on, uh, full house and truly hopefully the weather allows for some kind of decent football that it hasn't really allowed for for you could say top class intercounty football so far in the league. So hopefully we get a decent uh, evening Saturday evening in Tralee and, you know, just seeing top two top teams really go at it. There's a good chance this is part of a trilogy that they play this week, they play in a league final and then they play later on in the summer. Yeah, look at quite possibly so. And I look at a lot of other teams that have something to say about that. I'm sure about that. Yeah, it's quite possible. Like certainly... Um, you know, another win possibly for each team might get them into a into a league final. So obviously, you know, it's 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 quite possible it could end up something similar to like 2019, where we played them in the league league final and then later on in the championship. So yeah, it could be interesting a few weeks ahead. And you know, there's not going to be a massive gap between the games realistically. You know, if 
just say if it was Mayo carrying a league final you're talking probably what three weeks time if they did meet in the Ireland series you're only talking another maybe seven or eight, eight weeks after that so there's not going to be a huge turnaround or a huge maybe difference in uh in performances or, or teams teams that's playing in them games or players that's playing in them games so yeah interesting times ahead hopefully it's more Lord of the Rings and Godfather and part three is the best <laughs> part of the three of them <laughs> yeah hopefully so thanks a million for joining us cheers Colm no problem lads take care Colin, Colin Boyle giving us some thoughts there on the weekend's GAA action but at 9.33 this morning we're bringing you massive breaking news from the world of football Roman Abramovich has been sanctioned officially by the UK government. All his UK assets have been frozen. Chelsea can still operate under a special licence, but the sale of the club is now on hold. The sanctions are wide-ranging and they relate to all commercial activity around the club. So Martin Ziegler is reporting this morning and others that the club will not be allowed to sell any more tickets. Only season ticket holders will be able to go to games for the foreseeable future. No merchandise will be available to be sold catering will be allowed at the matches but this is an absolutely massive blow to Roman Abramovich and to Chelsea and it's kind of about time we've been talking about why the UK government hadn't done anything to sanction the oligarchs but uh, Abramovich is one amongst several that have been hit Uh, Boris Johnson has this morning said there can be no safe havens for those who have supported the invasion of uh, Ukraine by Russia and uh, the details of or the, certainly what the UK government understands to be the relationship between Abramovich and Putin is now being spoken about openly by the UK government for the first time. And this news is just breaking in the last 10 minutes. But it's very interesting because they have essentially frozen the assets. No details yet on whether or not they might give those assets back or if those assets are being seized in the same way that um, we saw the uh, German authorities... Uh, seizing the super yacht last week uh, it will be very interesting to see exactly what happens next Absolutely and as you say there what's really interesting is that you've got wording from the UK government on Putin's involvement in what's going on at the moment so uh, just a direct quote from what's been published this morning Abramovich is associated with a person who is slash has been involved in destabilising Ukraine and undermining slash threatening territorial integrity sovereignty and independence of Ukraine namely Vladimir Putin with whom he has had close relationships with for decades. It was interesting, Jonathan Wilson was on the show last week of The Guardian saying that everything that The Guardian do can't really mention Putin and Abramovich's relationship. It is just a no-go area in terms of legality. I wonder, will this free up the press in the UK to, I guess, reveal more information about the exact sort of relationship that has existed between Abramovich and Putin and Russia? We still don't know as much as we might think about this guy, and I wonder, will more information come to light as a result of this? Obviously, that's the B side to the story. The A side is I think, Chelsea Football Club. Well, I, I think, actually, in, in a way, Chelsea is the B side. That relationship mm. is absolutely going to be front and centre now of all the conversations that we have and more details on on, uh, what we know about Abramovich and uh, the source of his money and his relationship with Putin and the influence that that may or may not have have bought him in the past. Just again, um, uh, under the licence that Chelsea have been um, given subject to the conditions below, the club may pay remuneration, that's wages, allowances and pensions of all employees of the club, including the wages of players and coaching staff, fees, dividends and other allowances to directors of the club payable under obligations which predate the date of the licence and are due in the period of this licence but not any fees, dividends or other allowances to the DP uh, reasonable fees or costs related to the ongoing maintenance, council tax, insurance so the club will be allowed to function it's just not going to be allowed to function at full capacity. We're rejoined by Martin Lipton to reflect on this breaking news this morning um, 
What, what's your instinct here, Martin? What, what, what has happened in the last 24 hours that the uh, government have decided to take this stance now against Abramovich? I think things have just continued, haven't they? Uh, there was a hope that... Um, I thought he'd be given a degree of leeway to you know, basically get out of Dodge was the injunction. that it, This is coming. He knew it was coming. That's why he moved last week to put the club up for sale. Uh, the Premier League have been in, uh, determined and insistent that whatever happened, there will be a carve-out, that that would allow the club to function. Otherwise, uh, any fan putting a penny through the gate would be breaking the law. So there had to be that for obvious obvious reasons. But it means that there's obviously no chance of any further funding from Abramovich. And the question is whether he'll be allowed to sell. I suspect not. It's not entirely clear. And Chelsea appear to be very much in limbo as a club at the moment. That That is interesting, that the fact that they needed the carve-out. I guess, you know, when you think about these things, uh, swift action would maybe have resulted in a scenario where Chelsea were no longer allowed to function, which would have had knock-on impacts for the integrity of the league, and that could have ended up blown up in, in the... Um, in the government's face so once that has happened I mean, it seems as if Chelsea have been and are being given a licence to continue with the rest of the season uh, they'll be able to make match day um, match day happen they won't be allowed to sell any more tickets I don't know if Chelsea sell out as season tickets I presume they don't um, they get a reasonable t- I mean they average about 42 don't they there's a 44,000 capacity the issue I guess is for away fans who haven't yet bought their tickets for those matches that aren't for sale yet Will they be? They won't be allowed to buy them on that basis. It's, it is really unclear. The Premier League needs to find out and to explain. They've got, I think, what five, five or six home matches left, um, including Newcastle on Sunday, which is the the battle of the two detested regimes. It would appear, um, and uh, it's a really interesting scenario. How does it play out? It would be unfair, for example, if other clubs couldn't send Arsenal for their big. Derby match, which is yet to be rearranged, couldn't have any fans at Stamford Bridge. That would be unfair. But if Chelsea can't sell tickets, then Arsenal couldn't have fans at the game. I wonder, could they give tickets away for free? To uh, I mean, maybe maybe they can't take any revenue, but maybe they can still issue tickets. Um... I suppose they could issue them to the Premier League, who could then dispose of them. That would be, or give them straight to Arsenal, even, and then Arsenal can make a decision about where the money goes. I mean, if that twenty twenty pound or £30 cap was in place, then you can. it would be a re- relatively m- minimal sum that was being raised. But there'd have to, there has to be some sort of way around it, definitely. This is a, a huge issue, which uh, is, in the greater scheme of things, minimal, but in football terms, it's quite important. What is clear is that a decision has been made by the highest level of the UK government, uh, prompted, I suspect, by actions going to be taken by the EU and, um, and the US, but there you go, because I saw... Um, Abramovich list, uh, listed on a potential list of US sanctions in the, uh, just a couple of days ago. Um, but it's got extremely serious now. And if, if anyone tells you they know how it's going to play out, they're lying, I suspect, because I'm not sure anyone knows. What's going to be interesting as well is um, how quickly the Chelsea fans now rush to the defence of Roman Abramovich when Martin more information will be allowed to be reported in, in your own media first off I mean just kind of again going going through what's been published this morning from the UK government one of the things that has been mentioned is that Abramovich uh, is a, a shareholder of Everaz PLC which is a steel manufacturing and mining company which has uh, supposedly been involved in supplying tanks uh, at the production of tanks uh, and other steel to the 
Russian military over the last little while. So he is a shareholder in a company that is actually helping the the, the war, the invasion of it's Ukraine. Directly linked. Directly to linked the, to funding or or for po- propelling the invasion of Ukraine. Correct. So I mean, that's as serious an allegation as you can get, I would I would argue. Absolutely. The fact that there's an ongoing relationship with Putin, which he's always denied, uh, as we know from the legal issues um, uh, in the, the Catherine Belton book last year. This, whether proven or not, has now been alleged and stated as fact by the UK government. That's a significant up, uh, upscaling of position, isn't it? Without any question. The tribality of football means that there will be some who... Uh, will rush to his defence come what may. I think the majority of Chelsea supporters, I hope, will not take that stance. They can be proud and grateful uh, of what Chelsea have done in the last 20 years. Uh, and until recently, the, the source of that money has not been an issue. Now it has become one. And tying Abramovich directly to Putin, as the UK government has done in this uh, explanation for the sanctions list um, is a pretty brutal act, to be honest, and one that will certainly make, I think, a lot of supporters, even Chelsea supporters, start to question the concept of blind loyalty. You really do hope so. It, just to, to tease out what might happen to the club, if they, if it's not allowed to be sold, then the question of ownership becomes very important very quickly. And then I do wonder about the possibility here for some kind of fan ownership or some kind of... Like, all of a sudden, the club doesn't have the value that it had to Abramovich. It still has massive value to whoever wants to buy it. So I don't know, like, if if nobody's on the other end of that transaction, do they need to realise all the value? They don't need to get two billion or three billion because where's that money going to go? Well, the thing, I guess, is if they can't sell then the club has to become self-sufficient totally because there's no further shareholder, owner funding allowable, which means, I suspect, that any transfer plans go out the window. What they've got to do is to raise money by selling players who they wanted to keep because otherwise they're not going to be able to to freshen things up. And, of course, knowing that they're in effectively any sale is a distress sale, the price of those assets will drop because it's a buyer's market. Then the value of the club drops because the quality of, you know, the, the sort of the knock-on effect is, is, is absolutely huge. Whatever happened, it was going to be very different post Vermovich. I couldn't see anybody else coming in and being uh, as keen to say in the final analysis, oh, go on then, when it came to the manager asking for money. Now it changes it even even further. What's interesting also in that list, of course, is, is linked directly with Alicia Usmanov as well, who's also, um, you know, rather involved with football at Everton, despite all the denials and, and, and uh, statements to the contrary. Yeah. Two clubs in, in, in lockstep, in a fatal embrace, it seems, uh, in a dance of death. It's going to be very interesting to see how this plays out. Thanks very much for taking the call again this morning, Martin. Cheers to you. Thanks for that. Cheers. It's Martin Lipton giving us some reaction there to the breaking news this morning. We're also joined by Jonathan Wilson. Jonathan, the the scale of the response from the British government this morning, um, I guess it's it's not surprising. Uh, it's just that it is so all-encompassing that um, we don't really know what's going to happen next. 
obviously the main story here is Roman Abramovich has been publicly linked by the British government as a Putin ally for decades. That's what the official line is from Whitehall this morning. And uh, it, it opens up all sorts of conversations about um, why he bought Chelsea in the first place and all that kind of stuff. It, we can definitely talk about that. I, I do also just want to talk about the specifics of what it means from a football perspective. What's your instinct about what's next for Chelsea? I think it's incredibly hard to, to tell. It's incredibly hard to know exactly what this means. So, I mean, from, from what I've been able to pick up in the last sort of 20 minutes or so, they're not even allowed to sell more tickets. So, okay, if you've got a season ticket already, if you've already got a ticket for a match, I think you're okay. I mean, this is obviously kind of at the, the, the sort of lower end of it, the small scale of, of what the implications are. But what that means is pretty quickly, they're not going to have money coming in. And if you haven't got money coming in, you can't pay wages. If you can't pay wages, those players can walk away from a contract. Um, yeah, you've got... Um, they, they play Middlesbrough in the FA Cup uh, a week come Saturday. If they win that and they're in the semi-final, the clubs handle the ticket sales to the semi-finals. So does that mean we're going to see a half-empty Wembley for, a, for an FA Cup semi-final? I mean, look, again, in the wider scheme of things, it doesn't really matter, but... That's the, the, the scale of, of what this, this could be. There's very simple things like this club will not be able to sell tickets. Now, uh, I'm not even sure how a sale of a club would go ahead. I mean, Abramus clearly will still want to get rid of it. But if he's, if he's sanctioned, if his, if his assets are frozen, presumably that means he cannot sell it. So you then have this asset that uh, can't bring in any fresh money and it's having to pay out wages what, what happens to that? How does that club survive? And my suspicion is that pretty quickly, it's not going to be able to survive. We're not going to be able to survive in its present form. Now, the government's already um, said there's an exception uh, as a sporting club. We're going to allow them to finish their fixtures this season. Uh, you know, to, to, you know, so there's not a knock-on effect for the Premier League. Whether they, they, they sort of introduce other loopholes to, to allow them to, to bring in some revenue... I, I don't know. Well, they'll have to survive off the TV deals and, and sponsorship that have already been in existence. But you know, uh, some of those sponsorship deals are no doubt due to to wind down. Uh, Jonathan, I've got to say, we, we were having this conversation on on the show over the last week or so about the possibility of the club being nationalised and handed over to fans. And just to repeat the idea. Essentially, here now, nobody can buy this club because it can't be sold. The The government are seizing the assets. We don't know if they're actually seizing them long term and saying you won't get them back ever, but it kind of feels that way because the, the suggestion is that he has been close to Putin for decades and that's now in official documentation. So to then say, actually, that's grand, you can take the club back, no big deal. You can't really roll back from that, which means now the British government and the British people own this asset, the right thing to do would be to hand it over to the fans of Chelsea in the style of the Green Bay Packers or in the style even of the 50 plus one in Germany. Like there's loads of models out there for this club to be handed over now to the fans. Uh, yeah, there, there are. I mean, I, 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 say, I, I you know, it's only broke 20 minutes ago, so to quite whether that's legally possible, exactly who does own it, I'm not sure. I mean, um, I guess technically Bramwich still owns it. He's just not allowed to profit from it. Um, so I, I, I don't know what point he is forced to relinquish that. Um, but, I mean, that, that, that certainly is, you know, particularly given, given the nature of his statements about you wanted to hand over, uh, what was it, care and stewardship of the club to, to trustees. Maybe he would be open to that. Although I don't really see what he has to gain from that now. You know, when, he, when he made that offer, I think it was fairly transparently 
um, to, to sort of uh, wriggle Chelsea away from any potential action from the government, well, that, that action's now happened. So I, I don't know what he would gain by, by giving up Chelsea, apart from maybe some goodwill. But I also think he's probably got bigger things to worry about now. There's a, a travel ban associated with this and the details of his, his passport number has been published, his two passports. He's got a Portuguese passport and an Israeli passport. And um, as, as we've just said earlier, the the um, official list of, uh, of financial sanctions uh, does include details of his relationship with uh, Usmanov and, and ultimately with Vladimir Putin and with companies associated with supplying the war effort in Russia. So it, it is... Obviously, the the government in in London have decided that they're going to reveal as much of the background information that they have about Roman Abramovich right now. Yeah, and, and I think that is telling. I mean, this is somebody, don't forget, who would take legal action against anybody. You know, over the last 19 years, he's taken legal action against anybody who suggested links with Putin. Um, there was even suggestions yesterday uh, that um, although MPs could say things on the parliamentary privilege, that potentially libel actions could be launched against journalists who reported what was said in Parliament. Now, you know, legally, that's a, a pretty grey area, but um, the, the, the danger of that is that just the act of having to fight libel action can be so cripplingly expensive that, that that would restrict what journalists could say. Now, you have this statement coming out this morning, which it's a government document. Clearly, we are allowed to quote that. Um, and also, you now think, well, the lawyers who were acting for him, presumably they're not going to get paid either. So there's absolutely no incentive for them to be pursuing these actions. So I do wonder what else will come out as a result of that. And I think this, this openness from the government um, is, is almost sort of preempting that. It's sort of saying, look, here's all the stuff we know. It's open season. Like, that's what I was just about to ask, actually. Is it a complete game changer? I, I presume there's been a whole heap of stories that have been suppressed within the football media in England over the last few years with regards to, to Abramovich. Yeah, I mean, we, it's, 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 it's kind of worked, the, the, um, the, the extreme uh, litigiousness. Uh, I mean, just to give you a very banal example, um, before the uh, Champions League semi-finals last season, uh, which were Real Madrid, City, um, Manchester City, that is obviously PSG and Chelsea, um, you know, clearly all of them have, uh, should we say, interesting ownership. I, and I, I, I was sort of really writing about PSG and Manchester City, and about Qatar and Abu Dhabi. And I made passing reference to Bramwich, and the Guardian's lawyers took out that paragraph because they said that even a passing reference was, was enough to, to land us in trouble. So if, when you say the lawyers are that nervous, it just discourages you from ever saying anything. Mm. Well, like, clearly those restrictions now are, are being lifted, and, and, and who knows what might come out. In fairness, we've been critical of the speed at which various uh, governments around the world have been uh, have been acting kind of inspired by how fast Germany seized the super yacht last week. But there are 204 separate named uh, Russian uh, Russian connected citizens in uh, this document published this morning. And there's a bunch of other entities, as in corporations, companies, banks, etc., who had now had uh, similar response um, asset frozen assets frozen. This is a massive moment in terms of the sanctions that the UK have taken against Russia in the aftermath of the war. And Abramovich is obviously the story that we're talking about, but as as the detail emerges of all of the other people who have been sanctioned here, like 
the powerlessness of the the West to intervene in what Russia have been doing with Ukraine, or certainly the the um, fact that they haven't been willing to, stuff like this actually really matters. Like Roman Abramovich did have a connection with Chelsea for a strategic reason to try and protect him if something like this happened, and the fact that he has been una- unable to do so, hopefully, is a very important moment in football and potentially, you would hope, in in uh, influencing what's coming next. Um, well, I, I think it's certainly significant in terms of the UK government and London generally's relationship with, with Russia. Uh, I mean, there was a, a study um, earlier this week which suggested that Russian assets in the UK amounted to 11% of UK GDP, which is obviously a, a phenomenal amount. Um, you also think if the government were able to seize that, I mean, presumably a lot of it would go to, to, to the rebuilding efforts in Ukraine. But it also would... Um, it might clear a lot of the concerns about sort of post-COVID uh, debts and things. So I can see there's a sort of immediate financial attraction, albeit cutting off a uh, you know, previous uh, source of, of wealth generally for the city and some, for law firms in London. And obviously the Conservative Party has been, been, um, you know, been, you know, been you know, several millions of pounds of donations to the Conservative Party from, from Russians. So, so in that, that sense, yes, it, it, it is a massive... Uh, step change for, for the UK in terms of relationship with Russia and Russian wealth. Whether it's a massive change for football, I'm not sure because you still have Saudi Arabia or you know the public investment fund of Saudi Arabia, which you know the Premier League has decided is completely separate from the state of Saudi Arabia, owning Newcastle. You still have Abu Dhabi owning Manchester City. Whether fans of those clubs now are going to be uh, a bit more anxious about their ownership. Um, if only for the practical reason that, that they're going to see what happens to Chelsea when, when suddenly there's no income. Um, I, I don't know, but um, certainly I think going forward, fans of, of other potential um, uh, clubs that might be purchased for, for, from, from overseas states or, or, or oligarchs, they, they may not be quite so welcoming as, as, as we've seen over the last 20 years. All right, look, we're going to leave it there. Thanks a million for taking the call at such short notice this morning, Jonathan. It's obviously a lot to, of information to parse. I do think the fan ownership is the way forward here, and it's on the table if enough people kind of start talking about it. Yeah, possibly. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I, yeah, as I say, I, I just don't know the, the, the legalities around that. But, but, I mean, clearly, yeah, long term, if you were setting up a new football utopia, you would ensure there is some level of fan control to try and prevent this kind of thing happening. Jonathan Wilson, great to have you with us. Thanks a million. Cheers, thanks. You can read his stuff in The Guardian. You can hear him on Football Weekly as well. Right, uh, big breaking news, obviously, and we're trying to sift through the details and information. And as I said, the um, the document that the um, the Treasury in uh, the UK have this morning published is like 42 pages of, I don't know, is that is that seven or eight font? It's certainly tiny little font, but uh, they were pulling no punches when it came to Roman Abramovich, he is the second name on the list. I'm fairly sure that it's um, it is done by alphabetical order, but he's the big fish in terms of um, what they're writing about and his links and the uh, suggestions that the British government, the belief that the British government have about Abramovich's links with Putin. He's a prominent Russian businessman, pro-Kremlin oligarch. Abramovich is associated with a person who is or has been involved in destabilizing Ukraine, undermining and threatening the territorial integrity, sovereignty and independence of Ukraine, namely Vladimir Putin. It's written down in black and white. Now, it's quite possible the British government knew this a long time ago. Could have shared this information with the Premier League. Maybe. Mm. Just one other thing there. Just see Tarek Panja saying that the, the club can receive broadcast fees and merit payments, but they, those then must be frozen. 
So television money isn't going to be able to fund a summer transfer window, for example. Yeah, like they've seized the club. Yeah, take it, give it to the, give it to the fans. Like just like that. Just go while we're at it. Sorry, here's what we've decided to do, and it's it's fast as opposed to getting involved in this wrangling about the assets. I mean, if 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 he doesn't have access to his finances anymore, it's going to be difficult for him to find people to represent his side of the story. <clears throat> and it, the the point I think about the legality is is it legal just to take someone's assets under extreme circumstances it is and when you get those assets what are you going to do with them this is like when the criminal assets bureau gets stuff they wait a while and then they put it up for sale and then the so in, in this instance we've decided that football is important enough to go we're giving this to the community and it's going to be a share ownership run for the benefit and by the supporters and mm-hmm. there are a load of models out there it's very easy to do and it's pretty easy to sort out so um, significant definitely to say the least yeah right OTBAM is brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish to your day if you've just been introduced to us by this podcast or on YouTube make sure you subscribe hit the subscribe button uh, youtube.com forward slash off the ball we're here every day uh, or you can subscribe to the podcast as well we'll see you tomorrow OTB AM with Gillette get into your flow with the new Gillette Labs razor with exfoliating bar